Are you all ready to join me today in our trip to outer space? Come along quietly or not. I will talk to you of art. For there is nothing else. Some artists make a Yes. Bite upon Hello, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Planet Shivers podcast. I'm Albert Shivers. It's a big episode today. Musician, comedian, filmmaker, and entertainer Nate Marks is finally on the show today. But quick, I just want to bring you guys up to date on what I've been up to. I still have artwork at the Gamut Art Gallery in Strasbourg. I have four pieces there. All my high contrast, drippy, weirdo, surrealistic ink stuff. Also... I am in the process of working on cover art for a brand new Lizzie Borden book that's going to be coming out. Um, I'm lucky enough to know the author, and she is also going to be producing a line of trading cards that myself and a few other really cool artists are going to be taking part in. So we have the Lizzie Borden book, and there's also going to be a Lizzie Borden souvenir shop, I am imagining is what's going to happen. Look, you got all this press... For all the male serial killers, let's give some love to the ladies. So I'm excited to be working on this Lizzie Borden piece of art. It's going to be a lot of fun. My deadline is quickly approaching on that. As of right now, I got a lot of different kind of art stuff cooking. Lately, I've been more of an ink mood. Um, specifically, I just finished a piece of Richard Pryor doing a portrait of him. And I'm also working on a portrait of Lenny Bruce. And I got a couple other weird ones that I'm going to surprise you with. But you can keep up with all my stuff on Instagram, at Albert Shivers. Or you can come say hey on Facebook, which is also just Albert Shivers. Again, I'm very excited for this episode. Nate Marks is on the show, joined by my buddy Isaac. And the three of us have a great conversation. And, um... I'm look, I'm already ready for part two with Nate. I don't know, and when you're done listening to this, you're probably going to be ready too. Many of these episodes always leave me wanting more. I enjoy hearing people's stories, where they're from. I think we're all artists. I can assume if you're listening to this, you're most likely artistically inclined. We're all artists. And we all take very different paths but end up in a lot of the same spaces. And all these different paths, all these different encounters that we go through are all very interesting to me. And I think that we all have a huge potential to learn and be inspired by one another. And this was a podcast that was very inspiring to me. And I hope it is the same to you. Enjoy Nate Marks. Here you go, folks.
folks, welcome to another episode of the Planet Shivers podcast. I am and always will be Albert Shivers, and I'm here with Isaac Wilson, Hello. my right hand, and I'm very excited to have a guest on the show today, and who I don't think any titles can contain, Nate Marks. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah. So, I guess let's, we'll jump into first what you've been up to now. Sure. Uh, for, for uh, well, today, uh, uh, I, I try to do an open mic every week, and then I try to schedule a show to do as often as possible, but at one time, I philosophy was anybody that's performing with me at any given time on stage is Nate Marks and the Squirrel Trappers. Okay. So any configuration of any musician I just met, whether it's improv or horrible or whatever, a cover song, it's we're Nate Marks and the Squirrel Trappers that give the facade that I'm an established performer. And it started clicking because uh, my friend Vanessa and myself were often playing together. And then our mutual friend Rob, who's uh, Vanessa's drummer, I mean bass player for Rubik's Pube, he basically started learning the songs, that um, my songs, and we became... Uh, the official trio of Nate Marks and the Squirrel Trappers. So that is the current configuration of Nate Marks and the Squirrel Trappers. But anybody at any given time playing with me is considered a Squirrel Trapper. Nice. That's almost like like Funkadelic, George Clinton. Yeah, the sure. Same thing. Mm-hmm. Parliament or Funkadelic. The guy was doing two different bands and he was like yeah. basically finding loopholes and copyrights to get away yeah. with yeah. that. Yeah. So you just did a run of shows in Virginia. Virginia, yeah. I went there last week. Um, uh, Vanessa and myself, I was, I was pitching to her an idea of like, hey, let's get the heck out of here, see a beach, and hit up some open mics. Since it's after the end of the world opening up again, I wanted to um, try to find more appeal and uh, uh, reach out to some un- uh, tap- untapped audiences. And I wanted to do Rhode Island, and the Rhode Island's completely closed. I called like 20 different bars and coffee wow. houses. And then I called about 20 in Virginia, and just by talking to one guy, like guy says, hey, no, there's nothing going on in Virginia. I would basically interject and say, hey, I know it's not your job, but it would mean a lot. I'm just calling around. Do you know anybody that is in Virginia doing a show? And somebody knew somebody that said, yes, there's one at Virginia Beach opening up their first show in over a year. His name is Damian Wade. Reach out to that guy. He's a good guy. So I told Vanessa, hey, I found an open mic. So we went to Virginia, Chincoteague Island. It's like the island of wild horses in Virginia Beach. The venue Keegan's is about two hours north of that, still on the coast. And so we saw the beach. I saw some wild horses, had a new sandwich. And then I wanted to uh, reach out and do some open mic out there. And we did about a 20-minute set. And they loved it. We were very well received. Nice. Yeah. Nice so what, um, let's go into a little bit of the inception of the Squirrel Trappers. Some of your mythology behind it. Uh, sure. So uh, <laughs> I didn't really realize that subconsciously why I thought it was funny. I like to think of squirrel trapping as like the sound wave we produce of us, uh, an eclectic blend of all genres, is squirrely. So like the sound wave or the music experience, I call it the squirrel. There's a, a sound of squirrel, whatever you're feeling, or it's, an, it's a mischievous, wandering creature, you know, that intrigues me. And uh, I was hoping to maybe capture that essence and provide it in an audio format. And so music is the squirrel. <laughs> and so... Us finding and trapping that, honing it and releasing it, we would be the squirrel trappers. And so I didn't realize subconsciously why I maybe put that into my uh, vocab was uh, the last time I actually ever had squirrel meat was, uh, it's a kind of a funny story, was that my dad, he's kind of like a mountain type guy from uh, um, Carbon County Mountains, uh, like below the Poconos, and he would hunt squirrels growing up. So I've had squirrel meat many times growing up. 
And the last time I ever had squirrel was, I guess I was 13, and it was my mom and dad's wedding anniversary. And if you imagine, like, the average person, lady, coming home from work and expecting some sort of wedding anniversary dinner would be like a nice pasta or a steak dinner or something. Mm. And she came home from work to find my dad had spent the day hunting squirrels and made a, a big squirrel platter. All these dead squirrels on the table and he made a feast of squirrels. And then she walks in, she could see it in her eyes, like her, her eyes start watering, her heart's breaking. She's like, I don't want to have squirrels on my anniversary. And my dad is a simple man and he, he didn't go to Red Lobster or go to the Olive Garden. You know, he spent all day in the bushes hunting these things, cleaning mm. them, cooking them. And that's a big gesture not dropping a $50 on a dinner he spent hours in the woods getting these things right. to the table and you can see he's a broken man eating squirrels my mom's <laughs> crying eating squirrels and I'm 13 just observing this unusual uh dynamic and uh mm-hmm. I didn't realize it but I think that's how the, like, the squirrel trapping kind of came into me because it feels like it's like an odd defeated love <laughs> as well as a uh, as an animal and a music sound mm. it's uh did you eat the squirrels? I ate, oh yeah, I love squirrel. Yeah, I have, I've had it since, but yeah, I've eaten squirrel growing up. But that was the last time I think my mom de- deterred my dad from further squirrel hunting. And that was the last squirrel my dad has eaten, the last squirrel I've eaten, the last squirrel my mom's eaten. That was on uh, their wedding anniversary, which I think is like September 19th, okay. uh, 1996. Something okay. like that. You know, wow. If I would put it on a calendar, yeah. That's my folks' wedding anniversary this point. Wow, there's a breeding Sick. season in here or something. Yeah. yeah. yeah <laughs> Does your dad make squirrel for your mom or like they moved on from that? Nah, they were like hunting rattlesnakes and stuff when oh. they were like out in Arizona and shit. So sort of along the same lines, I suppose. Yeah, just varmints and stuff. I think uh, snake's probably a better aphrodisiac for keeping the marriage together. Maybe. It could, could Are your be, parents yeah. still together? Yeah. Good. Yeah. It's probably all that, all that snake All meat. that snake, yeah. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Mm-hmm. So how long have you had the squirrel trapper name? How long have you been? Um, I, I uh, guess playing with Vanessa and Rob, it's been one year okay. of be calling myself Date Marks and the Squirrel Trappers. I have, uh, in my catalog of albums, I have six albums, and the th- third album is called Hide Your Squirrels. And uh, it was mostly a bluegrass album, and I guess I named the album after uh, an announcement I had. There's a song called Thinking of You at the Zoo, mm-hmm. and I played it at like a Tamaqua hippie fest outside, like Stonehenge Park. I don't know if you know Stonehenge Park. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm familiar with it. New Hampshire? Or oh, no, 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 no. And uh, it's in Pennsylvania, outside of Tamaqua. Got a real nice guy named Kevin Smith, too. Mm-hmm. He hosts mm-hmm. Wagonworks. He's an artist in Tamaqua, and really nice guy. He put together a, a show, and I was doing a song that said... Uh, Thinking of you at the zoo, it's kind of like how you're thinking of your loved ones, of someone that you're fond of, but you just keep seeing them in like the faces of animals, and it's kind of like a naughty innuendo for like maybe bestiality or suggestion, suggestion like that. And uh, at the end of the song, I'm like, hide your squirrels, Tamakwa! <laughs> you know, like like that's gonna get everyone excited and aroused, you know. So right, that's the, hence the name of the album. And then I just realized I like saying hide your squirrels. I like saying squirrels, and I just figured like everybody needs a. Uh, like from P Funk trying to find the funk, or Sun Ra talking about space, yeah. you know. Like I want to have like a, th- a theme or a mythology or something to talk about. So a lot of my music is about Bigfoot, squirrels, sandwiches, and uh, like a funnier side of trauma and tragedy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's there's all sorts of stories, not only across PA but across the country. Bigfoots. Um, I tend to enjoy. I don't have an opinion either way. I enjoy the mystery of it. I'd rather live in a world where there might be a Bigfoot than where mm. there definitely isn't. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm happier with the mystery of it. 
Um, so you've said that you've had an encounter. You, mm-hmm. You've seen one? Would you mind going into that? Sure. Um, when I was, uh, as far as what I saw, I always coined the term um, ground sloth. Because uh, mm-hmm. that's what I, I felt like I was seeing. And it's kind of like a part one of a two-story because I didn't really validate my experience until someone else had told me what they saw. So when I was about, uh, I guess, nine or ten, uh, in Alberta, Pennsylvania, it was me and Josh Pearson were walking through a field, which is now developed in Lockridge Park, Alberta. And we're walking along this uh, field, and on the edge of a field throughout the bushes, we see what looks like sort of a guy in a giant bear costume crawling or slithering on his belly with long arms and long legs and when we would stop he would stop this thing would stop and would lay there motionlessly Mm. with its arms extended we'd continue walking and it would just do this very awkward body slither with its long hair extended arms and then it would stop again and lay down i'm nine or ten and i see this thing with my friend and i say yo josh you see that thing he's like yeah i don't know what that thing is it's like all right let's just get the hell out of here and we take off we run I take this memory and bury it in the memory bank. I don't know what it was. I think maybe at the time, I don't know what I was capable of thinking as a 9 or 10-year-old, but I thought it might be a guy playing a prank on kids 8 in the morning in a rural area. Like, right. why would a guy be wearing a bear suit, hanging out in the woods, trying to spy on kids? Like, that's yeah. kind of pervert, perverted. <laughs> I thought almost nothing of it for years and years until I was 16, and in the same park, Lockridge Park, Alberta, I saw an orb come out of a ground come out of the ground and there were fireflies out and it was with a guy named Tom Folds and we're walking on the path in Lockridge Park, Alberta and he says, Hey Nate, do you see that red firefly or that pink firefly? And no one's ever seen a pink lightning bug. And I said, Oh my god, that's a pink lightning bug and it starts approaching me and my friend and as it's approaching us it starts uh, expanding and contracting. It's a condensed ball of iridescent light. It was approaching us. It was conscientious of our presence of rather than being a wandering light from some sort of like natural, uh, I don't know, gas or however they, they explain orbs. And it approached us and it was about five feet in front of us spinning around and a beam of light shot out underneath it and the beam of light started uh, separating into what seemed to be the silhouette of legs. I hold on to my friend's arm, he's holding on to my arm and he takes off running and I take off running after him and the whole thing I'm, I'm yelling like, thank you God, thank you God, like a, a God revealed his presence uh, uh-huh. to me and I grew up in a very religious upbringing so I had like a spiteful interpretation of what God was and I, and I found that to be a healing for me to find that God is aware and involved and trying to show me something beautiful and rare and I would tell everybody I knew in Alberta, me and Tom saw an orb. We saw an orb. It came out of the ground. It approached us, and it expanded, became a silhouette of legs, and we took off running. I felt the presence of God, Mm -hmm. and I was really excited. And meanwhile, my friend Mike Yerger, he's a very, he has like a solemn, monotone type of voice. And and what he said is like, oh, wow, in in the same park, me and Damien were, were out in Lockridge Park, and we were smoking a bowl, and I think I saw a ground sloth. I said, you, what do you mean you saw a ground sloth? He goes, well, it was a full moon, and uh, the moon was very bright, and we saw the shadow of something under a tree, and it crawled from one tree to another, and it looked like this. And he demonstrates the movement of this creature, and he gets down on his hands and knees and does this belly slither with his extended mm-hmm. arms. And he, uh, when he reenacted what he said he saw, my heart skipped a beat, and I said, oh, my God, I saw the same thing when I was a kid. Didn't tell anybody or think it was worthwhile talking about and I was so inspired, and um, 
And that being said was how I realized I wasn't alone on Paranormal Phenomenon in Alberta, Pennsylvania, and somebody else saw it. And I felt that there was also like maybe a, a meant-to-be-predestined network of people in my life that are supposed to see these things. Because the phenomenon of which I saw, I later did see a UFO, the third installation of my phenomenon experiences. I saw the UFO with Tom Folds of Orb fame and Mike Yerger of Ground Sloth right. fame. So like we're here are like the holy trinity of paranormal perceivers, and we saw the same thing in the Everglades together, but... Oh, it was shit. it was that instance, and uh, my first album is called Hexandons, and the very cover of it is a ground sloth crawling out of an orb, and most of the songs, I know it's not, uh, I say like clever marketing or I say lucrative marketing uh -huh. to like say here is my debut album. I want to tell the world about sloth and orbs, like right. you know right. <laughs> you want to talk about like you know sing about your girlfriend or the government or something edgy or trendy. Right. And it's like <laughs> I'm just here talking about sloth and orb. Right. And uh, if in case there's any uh, misinterpretation, the cover is a sloth and orb. Yeah, and uh, that was my first album uh, dedicated to sloth and orbs of Albertus. So I think that answered uh, the question. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that's pretty common. Like. Uh... From the encounters and people and like interviews I've heard of like Sasquatch and everything, that is like a thing they do, I think. Like that weird sort of spider crawl, like ninja thing. There's like, I don't know. There's this other podcast, Sasquatch Chronicles. I don't know if you've heard of it, but dude's had on like thousands of, probably yeah, hundreds of people at this point, thousands of hours. And yeah, like multiple people have said they've, that weird sort of wood ape species does that. So I think it's kind of interesting. It's like drives it home. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah and it's weird. there's too many conversations for you to write it off, right? Kind of thing, and you could hear it in certain people's voices where you feel as though this person is not lying. Yeah. Like they, right. something happened to them. Mm -hmm. and, and in the cosmic scheme of time, uh, time sequence, like we're, we're at, like we watch TV or podcasts or internet or stuff like that. But this book I got called it's a stupid title um, or lackluster anywhere. It's called Harry Giants. But it breaks it down biblically, biblically like the, the the Nephilim, the fallen angels. I don't know if you know that, but in the book of Enoch or in Genesis, like the angels that were kicked out of the heavens mated with women and begat giants. And the book of Enoch, which was not included in the original Bible, is basically all about the fallen giants. And that's why God wanted to flood the world of, with the flood uh, for, for Noah. So... And the Genesis, you have like this abridged version where the world was wicked and God wanted to fix it, so he flooded the world and Noah survived, you know. But this goes on and on. It's not about wickedness. It's about like this um, hybrid of giants, of angels and women begat giants. Right. And, and the Nephilim may or may not have carried through some sort of ancestry into common times where like they are the long-lost descendants of that fallen angel or something like that. They're just a, a hominoid half-breed of some sort of human that deviated from the path of biology mm. um, but th the book is really good and then it goes on from biblically explaining about like the nephilim and the fallen giants and these hairy hominoids to uh the middle ages or the more uh, updated eras where alexander the great writes in his diary how him and his armies have fought against giant apes that are like wearing you know gear and have swords like uh -huh. seven foot tall things you know and then you also find out that the smithsonian institute has actually lied about destroying thousands of giant skeletons, and they've admitted this. Yeah. Like, it just, it just disrupts the narrative of whatever, either evolution or science or, like, what they claim to be able to explain. Like, it just throws a boomerang into the mix of, like, their professional uh, official statements when you discover that there are giants everywhere. And, like, you look up giant skeletons, you'll find in every single state in the United States and all around the world there were giant skeletons everywhere. So, exactly. Well, yeah, if you think, like, very... 
like right before the last great extinction event or the last great flood cataclysm or whatever, you had all the like these sort of like replications of like animals alive today, but they were just like scaled up, you know, like the megafauna. Like you said, like giant ground sloth. There was like a twelve foot tall sloth that would, you know, like crawl around or the giant short nosed bear. Like all these things, mammoths and shit. It's like you, you gotta think like there could have been like a megafauna version of like hominids, you know. It's like, yeah, again, like giant people running around that have just been, I don't know. Maybe like evolved or just sort of adapted to, yeah, kind of hide out from modern civilization. There's a lot of places like, you know, regular people just can't go. So you got to think like, who knows what's really out there? Yeah, I'm guessing if it is a thing, probably in the next few years, there'll be like some kind of disclosure because, you know, it's like it's such a smaller world nowadays, you know, information's moving so fast in so many places. Like it might just, they might just come out with it. I know Kansas has a Bigfoot trapping season or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, let's turn Bigfoots. Let's talk about some sandwiches. Ooh, um, the Sandwich Enthusiast Society of Pennsylvania. I am the president of You're that the, movement. Let's talk about it. Okay. Um, I used to gauge culture in, a culture in any like new town or city I'd visit by if they have a good, good record shop, a good brewery, and a good sandwich. Okay. And generally speaking, every town does have that, or every cultured city or town should have that. Mm-hmm. And so everywhere I'd go, I'd just look up best sandwich, best sandwich, best sandwich, and then I realized, like, there's no real, like, app. The world is supposedly so mapped out and categorized with uh, special interest groups that you could find anything you're looking for, like a furry community or something like that. You can find anything yeah. you're looking for, but you really can't find a good app to recommend a, a sandwich. There's no existing network of a sandwich recommendation exchange. Mm-hmm. And I was, like... Uh, trying to be the change I wanted to see in the world. So I would do freelance sandwich and journalism and investigation, mm-hmm. find out what the sandwiches are. And I find that uh, it's a great way to have basically a wholesome community where it's like no politics or anything. You know, it's the mm-hmm. universal love of sandwiches connects the basic human race into one sandwich-loving unit. Yeah. And uh, I find it's great. And a lot of people, not to any fault of their own, like if you're in the coal regions or Poconos, you've never heard of a Bon Me because you don't know of a Vietnamese restaurant near you, that's not your fault, you know? Right. Or a shawarma or something like that, you know? Yeah. like So from the bodegas in the uh, cities to the hangouts in the hills, like there's a lot of people not knowing of what one another's sandwiches are up to, and I'm trying mm-hmm. to forge together this uh, healthy sandwich exchange and a network of sandwich-loving enthusiasts to support one another in their quest for finding sandwiches. So I've, I started about a year ago. I think I had like mm-hmm. 260 members or so last I checked. Okay. Just daily, and I always try to find <laughs> just I always try to find whatever sort of sandwich uh, headlines are making the news, you know. And right. even just today, I had a smoked trout sandwich, my first time from the Cure Cafe. I never had a smoked trout sandwich, and uh, I was floored. Cure Cafe is great, but that's one of the things I find to be uh, like a healthy pastime. It's sandwiches. It's everybody loves it, and I made all, I made these sandwich shirts, and I, I'm yeah. flattered. So I had this idea to be like uh, to fake it till you make it, where I want to have this like. An illusion of like an established sandwich empire where I'm the mm-hmm. self-proclaimed sandwich president and people that don't know me if they just start seeing people with random sandwich shirts walking into their shop there's gonna have this impression like oh my god it's not only just a group it's a movement there's actually like maybe they're gonna have to step up the sandwich quality when they see a person yeah. walking in there I want to have a certificate on like official certificate paper uh-huh. ran, uh, anonymously sent to my favorite sandwich shop saying this establishment Damascus in Allentown has been officially recognized by the Sandwich Enthusiast Society of Pennsylvania for its outstanding contributions to the sandwich community. Like, if you're a sandwich shop owner and you get this framed thing in the mail, like, oh my god, we're being recognized officially by who? Like, you know, 38-year-old guy works at a flea market. They don't need to know that, but like... 
No, they'll hang that shit up. They'll hang that shit up, yeah. Yeah. And so I'm very flattered when I walk around and I introduce myself like, I'm Sandwich President, it's very nice to meet you. Like, it sounds kind of like a joke, but maybe one day it will be considered uh, an official title. It's an official title, but maybe it'll be more widely accepted as one. What's maybe like one of the most unique sandwiches that you've Uh, found? uh, I've I've, a full uh, believer in the Dagwood sandwich, and that's you can't really find that anywhere. That's like your own sandwich. Dagwood's from the Blondie comics. I don't know if you know... Blondie comics. I'm not super familiar. Um, it's like one of those old like Sunday paper comics, but the Dagwood right. is basically just a giant piled up sandwich that you'd find on uh, Scooby Doo or okay. like Slimer and the Ghostbusters. Just a giant yeah. piled sandwich, like fish heads are hanging off of it. Like <laughs> you know what I mean? There's just uh, a leg of lamb is stuck in there. But just it's like it's an art form as well as a sandwich. And just seeing something, it's also like uh, an an architect, like an engineered masterpiece of architect that you could make something so giant and aligned and balanced. So seeing the Dagwood is both like a science, uh, an art form, and a culinary wonder. And so I appreciate a giant towering sandwich, and it makes you challenge yourself. You realize how mortal and limited you are when you're face-to-face with a sandwich that you can't win. Yeah. How, yeah. How, does, <laughs> how does one conquer that? Like, is it just split down the middle, or like, you just dig in? <laughs> I don't know. You just you just have to go in, and uh, hope, you got to get in it to win it. You devour, yeah. And I, I have easily put on, uh, lost and gained 20 pounds over sandwiches alone. That's it. So, yeah. yeah. It's, like a, it's like a new high, you know? Some people are chasing the dragon or trying to, you know? <laughs> Some people have find love, drugs, or religion. And what I'm, like, looking for is, like, that, that, that thrill from sandwiches. Yeah. And uh, love, drugs, and religion work for many, but sandwiches, I think, are, like, will never lose you. I don't think so. No. I think you're right yeah. about that. What do you look for personally in a sandwich? Uh, the foundation has to be good bun. Uh, there's a coin, a, a term coined by this guy Jeff Rush, who's uh, the founder of the Hot Dog Society, um, uh, Pennsylvania local. But he co- he coins it a uh, bun integrity. So you want to have good, good bread. That's important. Yeah. Then you want to have fresh, you know, meats and cheese or whatever is on there, and uh, it has to look good, feel good, be made with love, and also taste good. Um, and I, I just think that you should basically have a healthy balance of all the elements of. Contents, presentation, a great bun or bread foundation, and um, and on top of that, it could be a traditional type sandwich, but if it's really good, like a traditional club sandwich or whatever, it'll stand out as a masterpiece because it, it's a beautiful, no sandwich can be replicated, they're like snowflakes, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? You cannot mass produce a beautiful sandwich, they're all precious little snowflakes. Even the sandwich I had today, I bet the second trout sandwich they made today Looked mm-hmm. a little bit, or felt a little bit different than the one I had. Oh, yeah. That was my very own unique, exclusive sandwich. It's pretty cool. You're in a sandwich hotspot right here. Stroudsburg has a lot yeah. of good things. I, I'm going to check out the, I don't even want a sandwich. I'm just like, just just because I'm here, I feel like it's like my obligation and duty as a sandwich president to try the, the goat, the barbacoa, <laughs> the yeah. pulled goat sandwich. Um, so, and I never had, I never had goat on bread. I'd like to see how that works. I might have had goat on pita, but I don't think I've had goat on bread. That's yeah. I was just thinking. I was like, what? but yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, no, that would that would be completely. I don't know if I've ever. I mean, I've had the lamb gyros. I don't know if I've even had goat. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think I've had goat either. I think I've had goat at like a Caribbean or Jamaican place, okay, or Spanish place. But I've never had. I guess they're Portuguese, Mexican, yeah. El Moreno. It says, but I have not had a goat sandwich. Mm. And I was perusing menus on my way to get a sandwich. Oh, yeah. I just want to weigh out my options uh-huh. and see what kind of sandwich. We're in like the sandwich red light sandwich district. 
You know, just right. see, see what's going on in the world. And Just sandwiches in the yeah. window with a red light bulb. <laughs> yeah. I'm just smitten by uh, gimmicks, novelties, and uh, very rare options. And I, I've never heard of a barbacoa sandwich. And uh, mm. so I'm probably going to get that as a chaser today. Yeah. I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I document all my sandwiches. Awesome. Mm. Wait, so where can, where can people find or join... This enthusiast group. It is a Facebook uh, group. So the Sandwich Enthusiast Society of Pennsylvania is a Facebook group. Uh, Just get on there and share your sandwiches homemade or outsourced. And just keep it nice. Be nice. Talk about sandwiches. That's it. Yeah. You know, I I hate to say, how did you get started? Sure, sure. But, you know. Um, I guess uh, whatever it is I'm doing is a manifested collective response to just like a lot of just like being exposed to a lot of... uh, uh, I don't know how to, to say it. just nor- normal music or average people. I think like mediocrity is way too celebrated. People like simple songs, rock songs, or songs that say "baby, baby, baby" or whatever. And um, you know, I, I I'm glad that some of some people I know were exposed to a lot of music and a lot of interesting music. Mm. My parents only listened to like the Beatles, Rolling Stones, and Fleetwood Mac, so I kind of always had this resentment <laughs> towards like uh, '70s pop rock stuff, which I had grown mm. to appreciate now. But I was like resentful of it growing up. I was like 15, 16, and I was listening to like a Miles Davis on the corner record. I don't know if you know oh, that. Oh, that's my favorite Miles Davis so, record. But I'm like 15, and like, right. you know, my, my friends and peers are listening to like, you know, Wu Tang, Nirvana, and Marilyn Manson. It's right. like heroin, g- gangster rap, or, or, you know, Antichrist stuff. Right. And I'm listening to instrumental jazz, and my mom's like, turn that shit off! It's like, you know, a lot of people, parents might be glad their kids are listening to instrumental music and I was like right. discouraged from doing so yeah. and um, so I, I always liked all kinds of music but I didn't really know how to play anything until my mid to late 20s um, although I very much liked music so the first earliest performances I had were basically me tuning things in my own way playing with amplified toys like rubber chickens mm-hmm. um, I was really a big fan of Harry Parch I don't know if you know Harry Parch no. uh, he was a composer that built all of his own instruments out of like Salvage junk, giant bowls, giant glass chimes, um, oddball-looking wooden blocks. This stuff looks like furniture from an alien's living room. And he basically rewrote music to to be made with uh, these homemade instruments. And so I, I enjoyed making instruments and tuning things to my own vocab of music because it didn't make sense to anybody else. So I couldn't hit a wrong note. I was playing my own music with my own instruments. So the first few times I was playing were very much like, perf- uh, how do you say, like, performance art type things where it's challenging uh, the melody and tonation and per- percussive rhythmic nature of a traditional song because it's all new music and people were blown away by it like I would amplify uh, you put a guitar pickup on an electric fan every tong on the fan is a different length meaning it has a different vibration when you pluck it and if you pluck mm-hmm. the same things five different ways in a row you create a melody by plucking a fan. And I just realized like you could basically rewrite music by just plucking a fan. I didn't know anything about chords or music theory, but I was just doing that kind of thing for a while. And then I started trying to learn how to play guitars, and I learned uh, the banjo was my first instrument. I took two lessons. I didn't like the guy, so I quit having two lessons. But I always liked all kinds of music, but my favorite kind of genre of music is like genre defiance. I like the musicians that don't really adhere to one genre, Mm -hmm. and that fascinated me by being able to have elements of like jazz and country and heavy metal and maybe something that's like sort of psychedelic and I get bored easily with like long guitar solos or maybe pretentious noise stuff I've sat through all that stuff and I'm just trying to basically make it the bottom denominator is that I want my music and and performance to be entertaining 
to the snobs, to the yuppies, to the local yokels, to the blue-collar guy, to everybody. I want you to be entertained because I'm presenting something that's supposed to be universally loved and accepted. Like, I'm right. trying to give... And if you don't like it, that's okay. That's that's on you as well. Right. But I'm trying to make it so that it's not an unattainable enjoyment for somebody. Like, yeah, j- yeah. jazz isn't for everybody, or heavy metal's not for everybody. But I'm, if I could combine that, present it to you, maybe you find that you actually did like jazz or heavy metal. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to throw this out there as, you know who Sun Ra is? Yes. Okay, I'm a huge Sun Ra fan. Okay. And Sun Ra is one of those things that was a big inspiration for me trying to put on a theatrical type of performance. Sun Ra claimed he came from outer space. It was a gift to black people to take them back to another planet. Mm-hmm. And it was like at a time needed in the uh, early 60s and 70s. And like his message of love, hope, and just like self-awareness of of uh, just, just trying to reach out to everybody. The music was universal, but tr- trying to reach out and basically say this music is a gift to earth. Right. And I'm trying to bring you all with me to experience a new form of music that makes sense in another world. Like, Earth is doomed and tragic. I want to ex- help heal you with this music from another world. So the one sax player, flute player, Marshall Allen, uh, who uh, co-wrote some of the songs on an album called Angels and Demons at Play, I went to see him play a sax solo at a Little Philly dive bar in maybe 2003. And I go into this bar... And I see the guy dressed up like uh, wearing sunrock garb. He's like the only black guy there. He's the only guy that is in his 80s there. And he has a saxophone around him. So it's like, that's obviously Marshall Allen. I was smitten. I sat up next to Marshall Allen and I go, wow, it's so nice to meet you, Marshall Allen. Like, I, I'm a big fan. You, your music has changed my life. It's, it's an honor to meet you. And so the first thing I asked him is say, these are two things that I took away from like actually hearing a musician that believed in his philosophies. It wasn't just like a show that they put on. The guy actually believed in what they were doing, their own mythology. It was not a show. I said, Marshall, what do you think you're going to play tonight? He goes, what do I think I'm going to play tonight? I don't think when I play, I feel when I play. You think when you fall in love? You think when you hate somebody? You don't think or feel that. You you feel that. You know, you you feel that. That's And they pulled out, it's like, blah, 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 he puts it away, he goes, I'm going to play how I feel tonight. You cannot think how you feel. I'm like, okay. You yeah. know, like me trying to over-intellectualize yeah. uh, music is maybe a fault of mine, you know? Mm-hmm. Like notes on paper or hitting the right note or is everybody in key, you know? Marshall Allen didn't think so. He, him playing from the heart, that's what he was talking about. Yeah. And then the second question I have, Marshall, what do you think of music today? Do you, do you like like the standard for pop music? Do you like what jazz has become? Do you like what the jazz audience has become? Do you, uh-huh. do you like um, like country music or uh, you know progressive rock? Do you, do you like this kind of music? And he gave me a parable, and it blew me away. He goes, he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he goes, Okra. I'm like, okay. He goes, I used to hate okra. I hated it growing up. I didn't like the way my mom made it. I didn't like the way my grandma made it. I hated okra growing up. And then one day, I had okra, and a different way it was made, and I realized it wasn't okra that I was hating. It was the way they were making the okra. Mm-hmm. And like the hair on my neck stood up, and I'm like... You just explained how the average person might say, I don't like jazz or heavy metal or country music. It's like, maybe you don't because you didn't hear the one for right. you yet. Yeah. Like, on the corner, the average person might have heard Weather Report on the Weather Channel, but they hear yeah. on the corner, that's a funky, fun album with some amazing guitar yeah. on there. So, yeah. just as an example, him comparing music to okra, and not even like saying, here's a parable or here's an analogy. He spoke yeah, in a parable. <laughs> yeah. Like, the Sermon on the Mount... And I was a uh, 21-year-old at a bar by myself, having a, a musical legend grabbing my shoulder and angrily explaining okra to me, and it was like an honor. It was such an honor, and I, and I took a lot from that. That's awesome. <coughs> Thanks. 
This holiday, buy Gefilte fish in gleaming glass jars, made in the finest tradition of Passover under strict rabbinical supervision. Delicately light, always right. Gefilte fish in jars. Choose your favorite brand at your local food market. A message from the Specialty Foods Trade Institute. Let's pick up from where you left off. Um, so, uh, so there was basically a transitional period where I started basically winning some audiences over, but the first few times I would ever played out was met with uh, hostility and resentment. And that's uh, interesting. I think it helped me get thicker skin and either affirm that I should believe in myself because it would be easy to get discouraged from that. But the town I'm from, Albertus, Pennsylvania, had a bar called the Iron Horse. And the Iron Horse was sort of this uh, like hick bar that reminds you of like the Wild West days, for instance. Um, like I've seen uh, like a guy slow dancing with somebody's wife and the guy come up in this take the guy's wife and throw her into the jukebox and everybody bum rushes them and throws them all out and then they just go back like nothing happened. Uh, the bartender literally was like a Vietnam vet with an eye patch who talked out of the side of his mouth like a pirate. Like like they're like hired actors for this atmosphere. Or There was a wedding reception there where somebody got jealous over somebody danced with somebody and f- brought in a gun and fired out the windows and the ceiling and it was like the Wild West. A lot of cops came in and they closed the place down for a little bit but this was the Iron Horse in Alberta's PA, and the first time I ever had a show was me and a friend, Eric Snyder. We had this idea where we were starting to play guitar and drums together. We're like, hey, let's learn a couple songs that people might like at the Iron Horse and go there and, and play, uh, play, uh, play the set. So we learned War Pigs, which is an easy song to play, and I know all the lyrics by Black Sabbath, War Pigs. Okay. So we talked to the bartender, hey, we want to play a quick couple songs uh, for the locals, if that's okay. Okay, sure. So we set up a little drum set and a guitar, and there's these drunk local good old boys there. And the first thing I I hit is, and generals gathered in their masses. You know, as soon as I said that, guy in the back, no one even asked his opinion. He goes, Put my dick up in your asshole. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck? Like, we were here about one minute, and like, I'm already getting this kind of hostility. Right. And I look at Eric Snyder, and it was around the time where, no offense, I know this, I know this is not a, a sensitive, Dale Earnhardt had just died. Okay. And I was like, well, how do I retaliate with these rednecks by pulling on yeah. their strings? What am I going to do? That's... Like, Dale Earnhardt sucking cocks in hell. And that was like my go-to. <laughs> And just like that, they all came up and um, started unplugging us. Get, get the fuck out of here! Get the. That's and like amazing. me and Eric, like I don't want to fucking play for you guys anyway. So we got our stuff. We started loading up into the, the, his truck. And as we're loading up the truck, the guy that said, "Put my dick up in your asshole," he comes out to the truck. And as we're putting it away, and like you know, we're both like 21, and we're like, "Darn it!" Like that was our first little rock show. And and he comes up to the car, and he's like. Hey, I, I told those guys to calm down. You guys should be able to play here. I don't want to... I'm like, you're the guy that said, put your dick up my asshole. But, yeah. uh, okay, I don't know. This is like a, an odd apology invitation. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, thank you. But no, I think we're good. I think we realize we, we don't want to play, and I don't think you guys really want us to play, so I appreciate that. Right. He goes back inside, and I'm like, I, t- I said, Eric, like, that seems like an, a, a suspicious invitation to go back in. And so I walk uh, around the bar, and I look in the window, and it's like, it's like this small town mentality. Like, what were they trying to do to entertain themselves? They were all hiding behind the door, waiting to jump. You can see through the window, they're all oh, hiding behind the door man. for us to re-enter this uh, bar. And I was like, you guys are really going to, like, 
one, you're the one talking about putting dicks up assholes. And then yeah. I got nothing against Dale Earnhardt or anything. I was right. just trying to get back at you. <laughs> but you guys are really ready to jump these guys or just trying to give you a free concert. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that was like our first debut show. And then the one thing that I told you about was, um, I, you know, I usually don't do covers, but I was just trying to win over the locals with a Black Sabbath cover. But I started getting this idea around the same time of um, uh, basically tuning my instruments a certain way and playing them rhythmically and percussively with having maybe um, like I would do stories and poems and give like a theatrical presentation. And I got to admit, it was very much inspired by like Sun Ra at the time. And we rented out the Iron Horse and put together a show. And it was one of our biggest shows. And the band at the time was called Love Beast. We'd play like disturbing, weird love pop songs, uh, all original. They were just like... They're kind of like pop songs, but they're also kind of raunchy and tragic. There's like a dark humor involved with them. And then we would also reserve like the second half of a set of just basically uh, a freeform sound wave collective noise, organized noise sound performance where I'm trying to include like a storyline or something like that. It wasn't just like random music. I was trying to create this, uh, a movie for your ears, you know. And we're playing uh, at the Iron Horse. And I'm basically playing rubber chickens and a harp and a ukulele and uh, playing the guitar with little pens and stuff stuck in there and megaphones telling a story. And my mom and dad were invited to the show. I guess they knew I was playing out these times. I was doing odd things at different coffee houses. Mm -hmm. um, and my mom, she got all dressed up and my dad came out and they, they their first time at the Iron Horse. And they're at a little table watching me play this really weird music in a hick bar. And some table right next to them this lady, I didn't, I didn't know this until like later. My dad told me this. The lady says to her husband, with her like mouth cupped by her hand, but very loud. She turns and says, right. "This is the worst fucking shit I've ever heard." And my mom's all dressed up, trying to support her right. son in her right. own hometown. Right. And she just starts crying. And my dad walks her out with like a coat around her shoulders, like how James Brown like gets like right. you know the faint, the right. faint on stage, yeah. and patting him on the And so I'm like. You know, I think I have, like, deer antlers on. Uh -huh. uh, I'm wearing a cape. I'm playing a rubber chicken into an amplifier. And I just see my mom crying, my dad patting her on the right. back, walking out in the tick bar. And I'm like, I look at Eric, and he's like, he sees it too. I'm like, in my heart, I feel like, I think I'm doing something right, you know? If my debut show, my mom's left crying, getting patted on the back, walking out because of the opinion of irate local blue-collar Albertas yeah. people, like, right. I, I, I maybe have a message to be said, you know? Um, and, and since then I've like worked on, um, how you say, a, a wider appeal for music, but that was like one of the first shows I ever had. And you could see that it was called Passage to Heaven because the bartender who got the eye patch just passed away that day. And his name was Jack. So we gave like a, what would sound like, uh, if Jack were to leave this earth and enter heaven, we were trying to give like what the 15 minutes of all that astral realm transitioning would be like mm -hmm. for him to go through the Thanosphere and, you know, the stratosphere, the Thanosphere, right. then into outer space, into heaven. This is the soundtrack of what it sounds like of a soul ascending into the sky. And that was what we were trying to recreate musically. They and just weren't ready for it. They, they were not <laughs> ready for it, yeah. Although if Jack, uh, if he could tell me from beyond the grave what he thought of it, that would have meant a lot too. But, you know, he was a, good, he was a nice guy. He was a good bartender, really nice, interesting guy. Um, but, yeah, I meant it with love too. I wasn't trying yeah. to, like, make little of a dead guy. Right. Yeah. I... I love that um, Dale Earnhardt is always the go-to. <laughs> sure. I know so well, and I have like no shame of trying to come up with the next great Dale Earnhardt joke <laughs> because it's such a hot button. Like it's just like you just 
amongst those people you just can't. Somebody once, and they were serious about it, um, but it was like the three stations of the cross, rather than being the Father, Son, and the Holy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was Earnhardt, Elvis, and Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I heard somebody say that seriously. Wow. That's amazing. That is amazing. That's pretty. Wow. So I want to do I want to do a painting of those three guys in some form, like a like a religious mm-hmm. type, almost um, like Sistine Chapel kind of thing yeah. of Earnhardt, Elvis, and Jesus, because that's a trifecta. Well, right generally, there. if one likes one, they might like the other two. Yeah. Yeah. In a yeah, in a general way. Maybe I could general. See, like, yeah. 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 I could see you liking Jesus and Elvis, and maybe not Dale. Right, but yeah, <laughs> there's a there's a lot of people out there that probably go for all three, but maybe you customize just like two. two yeah, three. it's regional, I mm-hmm. think. Right, depending on where you are in the country. Right, is where where you're gonna have more of the trifecta than not. What about like a DMX, Earnhardt and Jesus? That I don't know. That would be. I've yet to meet that person. <laughs> okay, but I want. I want to. Sure, a lot of bases covered on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Very three totally different worlds right. colliding there, no pun intended. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but so, you've also done a lot of performance art. Um, it depends on uh, basically the scenario. I think some of the stuff you saw is when Allentown had asked for some artists to play on the sidewalk or some of these tents. Okay. Um, it also has a lot to do with if I don't have a full band. If you have a, if you don't have a full band, people don't. You could be the greatest classical guitarist, jazz guitarist, whatever. You're still a guy with a guitar. Nobody yeah. cares. Yeah. A crowd of people, you're not going to win them over. Right. But if you're wearing spandex and a flag, come yourself in beans on stage, they're interested. They don't have to like it, but they're going to see what happens. Right. And so that's the gimmick that I, I try to use to win them over. And if I got their attention, maybe I'll throw a couple of nice songs at them and then win them over by the end. Right. But that idea was, uh, there's a few examples. I was working at a restaurant for a long time. And on the hour, every hour, I hear an Adele song, and I, I was pretty neutral on Adele, like, you know, the, the pop singer, yeah. and then after a while, I started, like, f- developing feelings about Adele, because I was like, dude, why am I hearing this all the time on the hour, every hour, and I started realizing, like, I'm learning these songs through condensation, like, I'm absorbing these songs, and I realized, like, I'm so tired of hearing Adele, mm-hmm. I want to start being Adele, I want to be Adele, and I guess, uh, like, South Park did the episode where Randy is, late. uh, is Lord. I don't know if you've seen it, but it doesn't no. matter. But, but I had this idea of like, I want to start doing shows as Adele. So I did a couple mm-hmm. open mics where I'd sign up as Adele and I have like a bass player to learn and I would do like really like macho rock versions of Adele songs and I'd be like, Oi, oi, you wanker peasant blokes, I'm Adele, sandwich eater me is, you know. Uh-huh. I'm masturbating with me Grammys, I've got me Grammys, i got mayo on me Grammy, you know. She's just like a hideous, horrible, like, meatloaf of a woman. Yeah. And, 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 and it has nothing to do with the, the delicate, beautiful Adele that everyone's right. going to love. Yeah. So I would do these shows as Adele, and I realized I loved it. And I love when people didn't know me. They see me at the, like, the next open mic. Like, oh, my God, Adele is here. I was like, oh, my God, you like Adele? I'll do Adele. I'll do more Adele shows. Right. And so one of the, my favorite performances uh, was for Arts Quest maybe four years ago. Um. I did the set with uh, basically I had a, a framed picture of Adele in the front of the of the front of the stage with incense and candles and like stolen Manning's packets from like Wawa, just lots of Manning's packets. And I said we're going to try to channel and evoke the spirit of Adele by the end of this show. If you guys believe in it enough, we together collectively can can hone in 
and summon the spirit of Adele, and she will appear magically on stage and perform the rest of this show. Do you guys believe in me? And be like, yeah, you guys want... And, like, throughout the show, I'm like, okay, we're going to take a moment to try to see if we can evoke the spirit of Adele. Adele needs mayonnaise. We need mayonnaise. And I'd hire, like, kids from the audience, kids, like, and, you know, kids yeah. in the audience, come on up. And the, the kids would be encouraged. They open a mayonnaise pack and, and cover Adele with mayonnaise on it as a ritual thing as we, like, all, like, like bow and chant. And That's it was amazing. a beautiful thing. And it's on... You can see it on uh, YouTube, but these kids are really into covering Adele with mayonnaise, and it's, like, so suggestive and wrong, but right. it's hilarious to me. And by the end of my, like, it was an hour-long set, first 40 minutes is, like, Nate Mark stuff, with a little bit of banter and uh-huh. some Adele ceremonial evocation. And by the end, I popped an Alka-Seltzer, did, like, a, a um, how do you say, like, a seizure. Yeah, yeah. And, oi, oi, it is oi, it's me, you peasant con blokes, you know, and, and like, and I... And it was so funny that like I didn't care. Like I'm not one, I'm not one for censorship, but I also don't want to like offend anybody if it's a public thing. It's like right. saying the c word is right. kind of heavy, but I'm saying it as Adele, so it feels like it's okay because I'm an right. established artist, yeah, and a Grammy winner, so I right. can say "cunt bloke," you know. And, and I did the rest of the show as Adele, and people loved it. And it was just to me like, what would I want to see on stage? Like I, I would love yeah. to see that. I'd love to see a rock show that turns into like a voodoo type of ritual. And uh, there's like mayonnaise and hysteria, and then um, we had some of the spirit that t- took over my body, and I be- become this mouth foaming Adele on stage, and uh, that was one of my f- my more fonder uh, examples of like a performance art. So that's awesome. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm I I don't think anyone could you couldn't have picked a better a better target to parody I don't think than Adele, especially. If if when she was on the radio and she was everywhere, everywhere you couldn't you yeah. couldn't escape it. I I tried and I could not, and I was like a caged tiger pacing the perimeters of my cage and working this taco shop where I had Adele yeah. all the hour every hour. So yeah. on an eight hour shift, that's eight Adele songs a day. So I I do think you you hit on something that's important in terms of you have to be somewhat entertaining. Mm-hmm. And going back to what I said before of standing out, what gives you that inspiration you you talked a little bit about it what gives you that inspiration to go up there and be so different well i'm not trying to be different that's one thing but also Mm -hmm. as just whatever my sense of purpose is on earth on this borrowed time i have i have no kids no degree no real estate no property no money my only sense of purpose is to get my music or whatever it is i have inside me to the world that's the only gift i have and if i don't do it i'm failed i failed tragically so that's what that's the reason I go up there. I want to be remembered fondly, and I want it to be enjoyed. I'm not trying to piss anyone off or annoy people or, or oust them from listening to the music. So I do want to win them over. But what it's important to me is that I just have an uncompromised music that I give to the world, and I think that they're going to like it because too many people have celebrated mediocrity for far too long. There's so many... I don't know how to say it. Like It was like occurring to me. Like If, if I heard like an Eric Clapton song... Or watch a John Wayne movie. Or something's right. like, these aren't, like, John Wayne can't stop being John Wayne. And Eric Clapton's yeah. not that good. And, like, right. <laughs> I, and like you know, and I, I hear the same, like, people, like, celebrating mediocrity generation after generation of the same mm-hmm. things repackaged and resold to a new generation. Yeah. And it's like, well, for every fucking Jimi Hendrix wannabe on stage, like, you know, or Jim Morrison, I'll use this example. Okay. If he didn't die, he would just be an overweight shirtless guy. 
that everybody would stop caring about in the late seventies. Yeah, like so, most like, of those people who died would have gone. That they way. would have. They're they're not going to live forever. And the yeah. music is basically a repackaged Mickey Mouse version of whatever they're trying to do to basically resell. Like the hippie dream yeah. was a, a farce. People yeah. just repackaging stuff. I think great music is timeless, and you are not going to find a price tag on it and be able to package it to the masses. So, I don't really believe that I'll ever be very successful, uh, like money wise, with it. But if I can get enough people to believe in it, that means a lot to me, and that's all, my only sense of purpose. So I don't go up there to try to be different. I want to be remembered sincerely by an uncompromised music that I have to offer, and that's what I'm trying to do. And I'm very lucky that I have. Uh, one of my best friends, beautiful Vanessa Marciano. She mm-hmm. she's the best musician I've ever worked with, and producer. And she's worked with me on so many things. And then people like Nicholas De Souza, who hosts the open mic. Yeah, he's a grateful host, a gracious, yeah. encouraging host. I've been to a lot of places where the host is it's a pissing contest, or they don't want you to be up there, or they yeah. discourage you. You know, so there's a community up in the in Stroudsburg area of just exceptional musicians that are encouraging one another. That means a lot to me because I just played yeah. an open mic in two Mondays ago. And uh, did not feel that in Quakertown. I went to an open mic uh, at a Quakertown, and they very much were resentful of me. And that's okay. You find out who these people are, but there's like a sense of envy, or it's like an old man blues club that yeah. if you go there and you're stirring up the honeypot, like they just don't want you there. Like right. you're too different. We are here to play covers. It's karaoke with instruments, and we don't want your original music in our bar. And like right. that's the vibe you get in some places. Yeah. So uh, I'm just trying to keep it real and just provide the world with new, uncompromised, unmitigated creative music. What, ins- what inspires your subject matter of um, tunes? Do they come from a personal place, your interests? Well, for, for instance, one song is called 99.9 The Hawk, uh-huh. and it's sort of a spoof of like the phallic, macho shape and feel of like rock songs. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, again, like how I kind of resent like mainstream radio. Like r- Radio is a mind control agent. It's no longer entertainment like it's supposed to be. At one time, you're supposed to transmit music and ideas and news and all that stuff is out the window. Um, little fun fact, 1996, Congress passed the Clear Channel Act, where they okay. bought up all the radio stations and TV stations. So at one time, radio stations were independently owned. Right. In 1995, for instance, if you called up and said to WZZO, I want to hear Zappo, uh, Don't Eat the Yellow Snow, or Yes, Roundabout, ZZO, I don't know if you know ZZO, they're like, okay, we can play that song. Now they're contractually not allowed to take requests. They'll act like they're taking requests, but they're pulling from a bargain bin of the same 20 names over and over again because wow. it's basically just a contractual bargain bin of people that don't own their own music. Like Prince, for instance. Prince mm-hmm. was owned by Warner Brothers, and Prince says, I don't want to be owned by Warner Brothers. And, and Warner Brothers is like, too bad, you're Prince. We own you. And Prince is like, well, I'm going to make 20 more albums as the artist or the symbol or whatever. Prince yeah. continually made great albums. You'll never hear more than three Prince songs on the radio because it's Warner Brothers owning Prince. You'll never hear independently owned music. Any music you hear on the radio is stuff that's not owned by the artists themselves, generally speaking. And it's a it's a basically a monopoly of the same songs, and I think it's to groom and condition people into hearing music as background. Because if you hear something that stimulates you, you're going to be more inspired to think. You know. Yeah, exactly. So when you're actually on you're on autopilot, like the movie They Live, it's like. They're transmitting mind-altering background noise to keep you, to keep you occupied. And like I thought to myself, like I was in a red light, and I looked over and somebody's like tapping their thumb to like Footloose. Footloose. Uh It's like 
who really in 2020 wants to hear Footloose? 2021, like, who's right. really wants to hear Footloose that bad? Right. But the truth is, that person on their same route to work every day is going to hear Footloose every day that they're driving on the hour, right. every hour. And it's a mind control agent. They're not supposed to feel stimuli in the sense that music's designed to give it to you. And one of those things is from the Clear Channel Act, when all the radio stations are bought up, it's basically a mind control agent. So to further push people into hearing music, not as a commodity for art, it's a background thing to shop to. It's a soundtrack right. for your shopping experiences. And if you hear something new and unusual, you'll be forced to react and it'll put chemicals in your brain that inspire yeah. creation. And they don't want that. They want you to be a sleepwalking consumer. And that's the function of buying up all the radio stations. So 99.9 The Hawk mm -hmm. is a song I have where it says, um, Dancing women, beer cans. We got imported cheese and some mighty fine ham. You know, what I'm saying is, but ham is a processed filler, you know? Yeah. The, the music that you're hearing broadcasted is filler. It's cheese. It's filler. It's just a big, macho, self-congratulatory pat on the back to machismo. Uh, just everything on music is dick-shaped. The guitars are dick-shaped. There should be nothing... Like, there's so many different guitars out there. They celebrate the same three or four ones. Most of them are dead, right. and you hear the same music regurgitated over and over again. So the average person, once upon a time, like was exposed to so much more music and now the frame of reference is getting smaller and smaller and smaller oh, yeah. that the average person won't even know uh, like who these people are. It's at, You're an artist. Like I profoundly was blown away by the concept of Andy Warhol just recently. What he was prophesizing by repainting soup or whatever right. is like this is no longer art. I'm just mass producing images that you're just going to blindly accept because right. you just want to see familiarity. Like, I was at a warehouse, and I saw an old Spanish lady wearing a Ramones shirt. And I'm like, hey, you like the Ramones? Hey, well, that's cool. She has no idea who the Ramones are. Right. It's just a shirt you can get at Kmart. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's like a suburban kids wearing Bob Marley. He has no idea about the Rasta struggle or the history of Jamaica or whatever. Right. It's Mickey Mouse. Bob Marley doesn't yeah. want to be a Kmart shirt. You know? The, it's, it, it, they're the Mickey Mouse versions of the actual artist. You know? Mm -hmm. The Ramones, whatever punk meant to anybody, it's not the same anymore. Oh, no, it's a packaged yeah. Mickey Mouse Happy Meal. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so that's that's one of the things. That's one of the songs. So what inspires a lot of the subject matter is I try to basically entertain you with humor, but I try to plug in some sort of, um, I don't know, a message or a metaphor but without trying to be pretentious about it. Like the song Harambe. I don't know if you know yeah. the song Harambe. Yes. Um, like two things about Harambe is like on face value, it's... Uh, a funny, dark-humored song about killing a diamondback gorilla who tried to save a kid, you know? Right. And it's, it's a funny song, but it's like also I was trying to show off a reggae side of me with singing and playing and that. Uh -huh. But the, the chorus is, uh, you were kidnapped from thousands of miles away. Uh -huh. That could be a metaphor for the, uh, the African-American of the Americas, you know? Yeah. Like Bob Marley also sang about it, but I'm saying, you were a displaced person that's put into a cage for others' exploitative use. You were the property of someone... And they're acting like they did you a favor. Like, we're not just talking about Diamondback Relas. And then the next line is, um, you were killed killed for a life you tried to save. We can all say that again. That's right. the message of Jesus. He was trying to reform uh, Judaism or make, uh, make, um, make a little bit more equality for the people of the Holy Land at that time, you know? He was killed for trying to help people. And yeah. so I'm, I'm like plugging this deep message under the guise of it's a song about a killed gorilla, you know? And if you don't want to overanalyze it, it's still a fun song about a dying back gorilla. But if you want to talk about basic human rights and struggles, like there's a message behind that as well. Mm -hmm. So I try to sneak deeper things into that kind of stuff.
Um, the song Bath Salt Rock was inspired by uh, in Bethlehem. Uh, I wrote that five or six years ago. There was some college kids at Lehigh campus that were doing bath salt, and they bludgeoned a friend of theirs to death. I don't know what they were doing, but they're just acting up, and somebody just bang starts beating the other guy in the head, kills him. Yeah. They roll him up in a carpet, and they drive him and drop him off in the Poconos. And this was uh, talked about in the local news that some kids killed a kid, rolled him up in a carpet, and dropped him off because of uh, bath salt. And I thought to myself, and I sound like a square, but... Growing up, you know, I used to do a lot of acid, a lot of weed and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I am not an advocate of, like, celebrating drugs. Like, I'm a big fan of personal choices and freedoms, but you're not going to tell me that drugs are great or drugs are doing a good thing. I know, like, the Bill Hicks quote about all the great music that begat drugs, but for me, I think drugs are skeezy. I think drugs are skeezy, and I'll do them. I like them, but I don't want to celebrate them. I want to find a community that celebrates them. It's a personal, right. private matter right. for me. And then you talk about stuff like bath salt, like these are also drugs. People are also doing drugs, you know, um, that does have repercussions to it. And I thought to myself, like, it's so fun to hear songs about weed and beer or Sir Nose Devoid of Funk celebrating yeah. cocaine for a whole decade. Yeah. Like, I, I love I love that album. I love the music. But I felt like nobody has done a feel-good song about bath salt consumption. And so I was, like, fresh from the press, uh, my neighbor's, bludgeoned each other and rolled one up in a carpet and uh, I was like the world doesn't have a bath salt song I want to make a bath salt song and that was an example as to me trying to package something that was not yet done same thing with the segue people talk about my segue song there's songs about the motorcycle the magic carpet songs about being on a boat songs about being in a hot rod you know but the segue is like that cheesy little r2d2 like thing that you would like go up and down on the strip mall you know what I mean so I was like I'm trying to make a song but it's like product placement to me it's like funny to sing about product placement I guess that's yeah. what I'm like looking for. I, I want to be the guy that thought of a song, that of a concept. You, we all understand what it is, but no one has articulated it into music just yet. And so I'm just trying to basically, I guess, kind of um, in good nature spoof Americana. And that's like, I'm speaking of myself as a, an American. That's my frame of reference. Gotcha. Um, and I think America is saturated with basically like product placement. And everything deserves a jingle. And I want to give these unsung things, the gorilla, the segue, bath salt. I want to provide the jingle, the theme song to these concepts that are not yet around. Mm -hmm. I can't sing about my girlfriends or sing about the government. It's been done. I have done it. But I don't think you really want to hear about my feelings or my opinions on the world. You know what I mean? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But everyone else is doing that. Right. And I don't want to open up to you. Like, if you want to be my friend, I'll talk about my personal traumas. But I don't really feel like singing about it. Right. Um, and if I do, it's going to be like disguised as something else. Mm-hmm. Like uh, like the, I have a Bigfoot love song, and that was written after a girl cheated on me and broke my heart. <laughs> and it was like a forbidden love song, and right. it was like my way of coping. And it's a very effective song, and sometimes I get a tear in my eye, because, not because I'm thinking about the unrequited love of a Bigfoot, it's because of a yeah. love that I lost. You yeah. Know? So that's how that works. And, and, and bottom line is, I want it to be entertaining. I want people to be entertained, and not because it's like contrived or forced yeah. I don't want people to feel like I'm just squeezing out like a like uh, if you listen to like a Weird Al song a Weird Al I'm like maybe there's a couple space fillers on there or yeah. right. you know I mean I love Weird Al I love Ween like I know I'm not the first to do like funny songs or spoofing songs but I just basically want to have a, a checklist of every genre and every topic and basically create something that's entertaining and something for everybody I don't want to just pigeonhole uh, a sound to somebody because I'll do like a reggae song next to like a doom metal song next to a pop song next to something that sounds like jazzy to me. I like the pie chart spinning 
so that you, by the end of a Nate Marks album, you still don't know what you heard. You heard it all, but you don't know what it is you heard. And if you, somebody says, what's the, the album like? What's Nate Marks music like? You're going to have to use like 10 words to describe yeah. it. Unless people are just like inarticulate and it's like weird. It's, it's funny. You know, <laughs> some people might just say that, but uh, I hope to stand out as far as something like that goes. And I do, that does go back, you talk about the homogenized pop music and, and radio music. And no, uh, we're living in a melting pot of society, or uh, supposedly people should be exposed to this and by now have found some version of rap or bluegrass or jazz that yeah. they can get or like, you know? There's no reason you have to absolutely refuse a sound or a tone because for some reason we're right. we're exposed to so much. It's like you're losing the picture if you if you can only eat toast and butter. Like if you can't yeah. put something on that, you know, you're 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 losing something. That's why my favorite format as far as like what gets me off as an artist watching other art forms is people aren't aware of how much they consume intellectually through a movie. You know what I mean? If you walk into a room and you're just Joe Schmo or wh whatever your background is, you immediately walk into a room. It's like this is hip hop or this is metal, right. and like okay, this is that, that's a big binary. I I'm in it or I'm out. Or I don't get it or I'm on it or I'm working with it. You know? Mm -hmm. But when you present a movie to somebody, the average person sitting through a movie, they have visual poetry, they have orchestra, they're, they you know composing music, they have fashion. There's lighting. There's a storyline. A Greek tragedy played out. They're actually taking in all these artistic elements from so many things. The average person doesn't want to watch a painting or read a poem, you know, or yeah. watch a Greek tragedy or listen right. to instrumental music. But you will sit through a movie taking that all in. And that all helps as a vehicle for pushing whatever plot line it is, you know. The, you know, I'm talking about like a, a movie, a movie, like a film. Like obviously some people just want to watch special effects and things blowing up. Like that's a whole other right. uh, type of movie. But I mean to say the average person unwillingly digests so much art from a film yeah. that the average person will not watch a painting or listen to a poem or study Greek tragedy or appreciate how a vintage curtain looks, you know, right. but when you watch it in a movie, you're taking all that in yeah. and you don't unknowingly taking that all in, you know, like I feel like if I had the resources and financing, I would want to present a movie because I have lots of stories and jokes that I also want to package in there. But at the same time, I want it to look a certain way, feel a certain way. I want the dialogue to have a certain way. I want my own music in there. And I could basically give you five to 10 to 20, maybe 50 art forms that you're just going to sit through and take because you're sitting yeah. in a chair watching a movie, you know? Like, movies to me is the one-stop shop for the average person unknowingly consuming art mm. because it's entertainment. That's the thing I'm relating back to providing uh, music for people. It's If I disguise it as entertainment, they forget they're taking in art because art sounds vulnerable. You're sensitive. Yeah. You're maybe less a man or less a person for right. allowing yourself to feel. And we're, we're all uh, creatures of habit, and we all have our own prejudices and pretensions. Like, sometimes I'll be at an open mic, and someone's like, next person up doing poetry. In my heart, I'll be like, I'm probably not going to enjoy this, because I've sat through so much self-absorbed, bat-packing poetry. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, oh my god, I was moved. You entertained me. That was profound. That was funny. It was dark, or it was sad, but you... you you won me over, and I went in there not knowing that I was going to like your poem because of how many people ruining it for me. Right. And, and relating it back to Marshall Allen and Okra. Like, it's not the poet's fault that so many poets are basically pretentious or self-absorbed people, you know? Um, there are some good po po poets out there, but if you've ever been to a poetry reading, it's like a uh, circle jerk. <laughs> it's like yeah. a circle jerk of sadness. It really yeah. is. It's hard for me to sit through. I've, I've sat through it, and it's not for me. And I, I do write poetry. I enjoy poetry. Yeah. I'd sooner... 
narrate it to um, like a, an odd soundscape or put it into a song. That's how I right. like to get it across. But I, I love poetry, actually. It's just, I guess it's just a matter of putting it out there, whatever it may be. Sure. And there's all kinds of people. So, yeah. like, um, like, for instance, playing out in Stroudsburg at that Scioto uh, Open Mic, the diversity and variety of music and the caliber yeah. of skill yeah. in the Poconos. I played out in Philly and I've heard less variety and less, you know <laughs> what I mean? And we're talking about the Poconos. And I know a lot of these guys are from New York originally, so I don't know how they ended up over here or whatever, but right. the fact that you're finding that much variety in culture and and caliber of musicianship out here, it's like it really says something. Like, you know, just because you're in a city doesn't mean you're better. Or, you know what I mean? Like uh, having a densely populated area, people are now like glued to their phones or glued to their TV screens. Right. It doesn't mean that there's like a more of a thriving art scene. It's no, kind of sad. If anything, there's less now. Yeah. Specifically in the cities because... Of just corporatization, right? <clears throat> when I take trips down to New York, each trip is slowly more, you know, Walgreens, Bank, Starbucks, Walgreens, Rite Aid, Bank, mm. Starbucks, McDonald's, and any of like the independent places. They're they're just about gone, and I think that the fleeing from those places, because musicians, artists, they can't hack it down there anymore. Right. There's no more. There's no more village. There's no more affordable mm. section that. That might be dirty and slummy and artsy, mm. like doesn't exist. It's all gentrified. Mm. So those artists are having to go to different places. I'm gonna plug my friend band Rubik's Pubes from Stroudsburg. Van- yeah, Vanessa yes, and Rob Shepherds from Bethlehem, and they're uh, probably my favorite. Um, I don't want to say local band because that sounds like diminutive, right? But you know, new band like they—they're—they they, yeah. are literally what I guess what people thought the Talking Heads sounded like in 1977 or something like that. Right. To me, it's like the the structure, the words, the style, the production. It's like this is this is a new sound. Mm, I'm a big yeah, fan of that. Um, some other bands are uh, the Holy Roasters. The guy—it's more like a conventional rock, but uh, Jake—I forget his last name—but he's an exceptional guitarist. Mm-hmm. And Dan Rivera on drums. Like, there's just really good musicians out there. I just started playing at a flea market open mic on Fridays. If you come out, I work at a flea market, uh-huh. and um, one of the best bass players I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, on stage or anywhere. Like, I've met Les Claypool. I've seen like Primus ten times. You know, uh-huh. this guy blows Les Claypool out of the water, and he's a guy in his late sixties. I don't know if you know Trout Mask Replica, the Captain yes. Boomerang. He can play that. Like, he says he broke it down part by part. He knows how to play through with a trout. Like, who takes the time to... That's like a lost cause. Who are you running over with that? But uh, he's there every week, and I'm just hearing him play with everybody. He was, like, on an Alice Cooper tour, and, like, doesn't mean shit. I'm not, like, I'm not like, a starstruck right. guy, but he was good enough to play with an established rock star, and he says it was, like, mediocre playing. Like, mm. he's just holding back, playing on a 80s Alice Cooper record. But, um, again, out of the pockets of the hidden caves of the universe come some amazing musicians just waiting to be discovered. And it's like, mm. who is, who's out there? I, I want to collaborate with that guy. That guy's yeah. not meant to be playing covers or meant to be a backup band for a washed-up 80s singer. Mm-hmm. You know? No offense, Alice Cooper, but right. 1989 Alice Cooper. <laughs> right. This guy deserves better than 1989 Alice Cooper, you know? Mm-hmm. But he's. A, but I'm just saying that there are places where I'm finding these great musicians, and you're not going to find them on the radio. You're not going to find them... You're gonna find him, and you're looking like that's it. Right. I, I just like this thing. Uh, I sound preachy, but somebody was once telling me, "Oh man, they don't make any good movies anymore. There's no good music anymore." It's like, 
when when I hear people saying that to me, it looks like a guy staring at a McDonald's menu uh-huh. and saying they don't make any good sandwiches anymore. That's because you're staring at a McDonald's menu right. the whole time. You're not looking. Go to your local bar. Go to your local coffee house. Go to your local house show. You'll find them. They're out there. Maybe not as much as you want, you know. But there's lots of imitators and emulators. But there are creators out there. When you mm-hmm. find them, give them the credit where it's due. Give them a hug. Buy their stuff. Like let them know that they exist. Because there's like doubts, moments of doubt I have. I walked right off stage two weeks ago because I thought I gave a half-assed concert, and I mm-hmm. felt ashamed because I don't want to waste my time or their time. Right. Um, I take it too personal to go up there and do a half-assed show. It saddens me to no end. Um, but yeah, there's great music all over the place. You just have to have the appetite for finding it. I can't, I mean, personally, do you know of any other rock bands in the Pocono area that like are doing something different? Because I, I, from the Allentown area, I really only can say I know Goat Wizard and... Uh, the Rumple Stiltskins, and like those are the two bands that stick out that are like sticking out, and everybody else is, they're good at what they do, but it's, you're already a, an established genre of rock or whatever, right. and you're doing, you're standing on the shoulders of your inspiration, mm-hmm. echoing whatever it is you learned, you know. Right. I want to hear somebody do something new, shake it up a bit. Yeah, I, I've not heard of them. I, I don't know of any. Yeah, it should it shouldn't be that way. You know, even like a good representation as to how the, decline of art or music is uh, realized is the closing of guitar shops. And one, mm-hmm. once upon a time, everybody wanted to be a guitar player yeah. or something, which is, it's good, but you know, at the same time, there may be a surplus of guitarists, but there's a generation of people that had played <laughs> Guitar Hero that have no idea, they're good at Guitar Hero, but they have no yeah. idea that three chords aren't that hard to play. A blue right. scale's not that hard to play if you care, you yeah. know? Like, you could have wasted all that, you could have used all that time to learn actually how to play guitar. Right. There should not be that much of a void of musicians or inspiration. I think people want, one, the basic human condition is you want to be liked and accepted. So when you enter a room and do something unusual, there's a chance that people won't understand you. And that's a fear everything I think a lot of people have as an artist. They're afraid of standing out. And us as a society have to maybe take a step back and say, if we don't get you, doesn't mean we don't like you. We're just not ready yet. Maybe we have to take a moment to process this. Keep being weird and annoy me until right. I get you. And yeah. us as a society, maybe we have to embrace the orphans of music or these mutants of music and that are coming out and presenting a new form form of uh, music for us. Yeah, uh, I love hearing something that upsets my senses. I like noise. I like it when it's. I like hearing, hearing people boo. You know, I sometimes feel like. Well, it's an emotion. You're evoking something. You're, I, I, you know, I, I don't think anybody has a mild opinion on my music. I know people that don't like it, but mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think I have like a mild. People will get a mild opinion on it because I'm doing something that's maybe a bit extreme for mm-hmm. the average consumer. Right. I don't know where the artists are, but I hope they come out soon. Yeah, we're pretty much like the only ones in our area, I think. You, you, you uh, what, what do you? Do? I, I've seen you play, right? I've seen yeah. you. Yeah, right on. Yeah, you know, just, I mean, we all have like a bunch of songs. We all do. And Isaac just put out a new music video. Cool. Oh, that's plug, right. Yeah. Plug him. What's it called? It's uh, Under the Grid. Old, Old King Moon is like the name, I guess. Is the name Onto the Grid a declaration of your presence? I'm now here. Here I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm going under uh, Old King Moon. It's the name. Just something. So uh, what do you think, this is macro, macro question. What do you, do you feel like we could move back into a good direction? Or do you feel like it may be too late for, in terms of like a mainstream people being back into the arts, back into live music, 
possibly back into galleries. Do you think we've we've gone too far into technological of things being on the phone or on the computer? I, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that. I, I um, as, a, as a cynic, I don't think so. I think we're going to be heading towards a really dark digital age in 100 years. Humans might not be recognizable. I think AI is a realistic thing. I think people yeah. are going to be like more plugged into their phones and if there's like a chance that they can get it like <laughs> connected into their body where they could blink and take a snapshot of something like right. I think people would be accept that they, they, the phone is already an extension of their body people yeah. get anxiety when it's not there or present so I think 100 years from now people are going to be needing the phone like they they think they need electricity or how we have we're already there I don't think they need it as an outlet to um, expose themselves to things I think it's really a tool of vanity you want people to look at you you want to be liked it's sort of like how one would decorate their high school locker. You're mm-hmm. like, these are the things I'm into. This represents me. These are images that I connect with. So people are no longer like the entity they were born as. They're like the straw man and collage of symbols that they choose to represent themselves with. That I think that's where art might get lost because everybody considers himself a podcaster or an artist mm-hmm. or worthy of some stranger's time. Look at me. Here I am. Here's my opinions on the matter. People not qualified to talk about any political movement or scientific investigation. People not qualified at all to talk about anything. Their social justice insights from their couch, from the Mm -hmm. safety of their sheltered lives. You can't talk about other people's revolutions or other people's struggles. I mean, you can, but you're not qualified really to talk about it. You're just one other person with a social media calculator pouring your opinions into the ethereal world. And people love that, that exchange. You're, it's an echo chamber. You want to be surrounded by people agreeing with you. I don't think yeah. that it's healthy. I don't think that there is really a great revolution at stake. I think that people are, like, let's say, um, the Black Lives Movement in recent times, I think a lot of people with well-intentioned, um, with, with well-intentioned ideas want to be sooner recognized as, this is me, I'm progressive, look at me yeah. at this rally or at this movement, rather than benefiting a, a movement. You want to be recognized for participating yeah. rather than collectively pushing for a movement. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if that's like a good example, but I'm just saying people would sooner say, look at me, I'm here, rather than worry about the actual revolution. They want to yeah. be the showcase of it or something like that. I, uh, I don't know what the future holds, but I think people need to put down their phones and leave their house and maybe celebrate arts and friends and each other as they used to for thousands and thousands yeah. of years. Hopefully yeah. hopefully it won't take like a solar flare or some shit to like, you know, kick it in the gear. But I mean, that would do it probably, you know. Like, Oop, all gone. Just I, I would love that. Electromagnet would... over everything. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that the internet crashes and see what, how people deal with that, you know, because people might have to start reading again or going exactly. out to shows again, you know. I, uh, I'm, I'm like a human like the next person. I enjoy people watching my stuff on YouTube. Yeah. I enjoy people liking my sandwiches. I do enjoy the attention I get. Right. Um, but what I am, just as an artist, I'm on there just to entertain and to, to talk about sandwiches. I'm not trying right. to talk about identity politics or any right. sort of thing. I'm there to make jokes and share music. That's my purpose on life. Mm. But I feel too many people are basically using it as a vehicle just to share their unqualified volunteered opinions on things they don't understand mm. yeah and yet here we are talking on a podcast about the dangers of <laughs> the digital yes. age right <laughs> so we're inside the cage talking about the cage yeah well you know it's at least 
at least we're aware of the cage. Yeah, that's a, I guess some that's... people aren't aware of the cage. Yeah, well, I mean, I grew up before cell phones, so I, I do remember what that was like, and yeah. I do remember guitar shops and record shops and mm-hmm. more bookshops, and and I think a lot of people are getting lost to it. But there's always going to be uh, somebody out there that's trying to break the mold to just to feel like it'll be met with much more resistance than ever before. Yeah, uh, being new and different. How much did your growing up? How much did it affect your art? My parents were very not supportive of my art. Okay. They thought I was gay for it, actually, to be honest with you. Um, and I never liked sports. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked to draw a lot. My first girlfriend at 16 was to prove I wasn't gay. So <laughs> that's, a, that's a true fact. I can relate to that. Yeah, you're an artist. You know, Before I was into music, I was really into drawing. And I, I'm, I'm a good artist. I, I consider myself to be anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I was very much discouraged from art. So I didn't really uh, uh, develop any more skills or try to prove it and I wasn't drawing for anybody but other than myself I just like doodling I like comic books I like cartoons right. um, and I like you know like monsters I was really fascinated by like drawing hideous monsters and aliens mm-hmm. and stuff like that um, so I grew up in a little suburban corner of a country town Albertus and my mom and dad were you know they're good people but they uh, basically did not want uh, somebody weird or different mm-hmm. my dad was uh, pretty Christian growing up and uh uh, I would feel it was repressive not being able to be myself and you know and also I didn't know what a <laughs> I didn't know what gay being gay was but right. I was accused of it as a kid right. <laughs> not knowing what that even meant you know what I mean yeah. like being called a slur when you're a kid and I don't even know what that word means you know um, so that probably helped me shape like being nicer to people like learning empathetically how you should yeah. be nice to people like that helps and maybe trying to explain and uh, enjoy each other's differences and expression like that's important and, and if I see like a kid that feels like he's not having somebody tell him he's doing a good job like I, you know I just want to like hey you know you're doing a good job you know good for yeah. you people do need to see this keep going you know maybe not anyone you know but someone soon will discover that you're doing great you know and that, that's important um, so growing up uh, when I talk about the Miles Davis thing but like Music and art were kind of like repressed growing up in my household. My mom and dad, they loved the same like three bands and, and they were always listening to the Beatles, Fleetwood Mac, and and that was that. But uh, uh, like my dad had a double side to him where he was like a real Bible thumper. Mm-hmm. And then the other side of him was like a big pothead. My mom and dad were huge potheads and they liked listening to like 60s and 70s rock. And I hated church so much. My dad was kind of mean about stuff growing up, that I had this bad resentment towards God and the church that I used to have to go like door to door handing out Bible pamphlets with my dad. And uh, like the church didn't even want him handing out Bible pamphlets. My dad was really into evangel- mm-hmm. evangelism and going door to door. Like it's kind of cultish and, and uh, I think rude and imposing upon uh-huh. you going to someone's door and pushing faith into their home. You right. know, that's mean. I think it's cold and dirty, you know. But I hated church so much growing up um, it had a lot to do with my upbringing. Uh, wasn't like anything personal against the Bible or the church itself. That I peed in the baptism pool twice at uh, the Church of Christ in Allentown, and once was to prove to myself that like I'm not afraid of God, and I hate church, and I hated my my family, mm. or I hated my dad, and so I peed into the the, the baptism. It's like a, like a, the church we went to is like a baptism by. Immersion, you have to go fully into the water, come out. Okay. 
And so they had like a little like jacuzzi in the church and like you go by and I peed into it. <laughs> and that was the first time I peed into it. And then uh, a little down the road, I don't know, like if I was taking a beating or something and uh, something went sour in my childhood and I was like, I'm peeing in that baptism pool again. That's a church. I hate these things, you know. <laughs> and I, and I, I peed into it a, a second time. And I kind of, I, I'm a superstitious person. I got out of it lately, but uh, I kind of think that I have put a curse upon me because I think shortly after that, my first girlfriend, the night I was going to lose my virginity, got hit by a train. And I feel that maybe peeing into a place of, <laughs> of worship so uh, mm-hmm. might have summoned some bad energy. And rightfully so. You shouldn't go peeing into baptism pools, even if your dad's media. You shouldn't pee into right. baptism pools. It's not everyone else's fault. Um, so maybe I had... Uh, Summoned the wrath of God through a stream of piss. So did they catch you? Nobody caught me. Okay. Nobody caught me. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Just the big guy. He, he sees Just the everything. big guy was watching. He was he taking notes. Yeah. But um, at the same time, again, when I first saw the orb uh, in Lockridge Park, that my first reaction was to say, "This." I had already peed in the baptism pool twice, but when I saw the orb come out of the ground, my first thing that I say was like, thank you, God, thank you for showing me you exist, you're a part of my life, I, I get it now, thank you, you know, and, and I took that upon me, that that was a, a greater power's way of letting me know that he's there, or they are there, whatever, I don't know who God is, that God's there, not only there, involved and curious or interested in my existence, yeah. maybe not yeah. everybody's being revealed these great things, but I had seen a sloth and uh, an orb and a UFO and when my girlfriend got hit by a train a week later, she said my name in a dream. And as soon as, this is like a week after she got hit by a train in 1999, I woke up when I hear in a dream, Nate. As soon as I hear this in my bed, I woke up and down the hall, a picture falls off the wall in the bathroom and shatters. And my mom and dad run out. What was that? What was that? And I just lay there like, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say, like, uh, dead girlfriend said my name, and then a picture fell off the wall, you know? I just pretend like I didn't hear anything. I just lay there. But I I don't tell too many people that. But I I believe that I I don't know why I am, like, selected to be exposed to that phenomenon. I'm grateful for it. Um, But uh, that's something I did take witness to. And I gathered that God is alive and well, and I'm glad for it. And I do pray, and I try to count my blessings and want to have a better feeling that that we're here on a, a, a good we're here for a good reason and i don't think god is love god is everything all the elements you know like i could get hit by a bus and get cancer god is just as capable of those things as well as you know giving us yeah. each other love but i do know that we're supposed to be here for some sort of fulfilled purpose some are procreating some are just to have diseases named after them i just think that i'm here to make music and art and movies and tell some jokes and that's what i'm here for and I hope I'm doing a good job at that. But that's what I'm here for. Hmm. So I forget what that was. I was rambling off about about uh, growing up as an artist. Um, yeah. So if I'm a little bit weird, it was because I was met with the face of adversity growing up, where I was in a repressive town that did not celebrate unusual arts and music, and my mom and dad certainly did not embrace it. And the first time they ever saw my show, my mom left crying, and uh, I think it helped me develop who I am right now. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. glad for it. Uh, it's a good thing, yeah. And it's it's in a sideways way. It's you're lucky to have found that because a lot of people don't find what they feel their purpose may be. Whether it's diluted by the average get a job, da 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 nine to five thing, 
or it's suppressed and they just go with it. <laughs> you know, someone could be artistically inclined and they get suppressed and they give up on it. <coughs> right. So, you know, it's it's awesome to have been able to to find that. Yeah, you know? Thanks, man. And, and the last, uh, to put it this way, I think in like 20 years, more or less since I was 18, mm-hmm. to 20, yeah, about yeah, in 20 years, I had had like four jobs. It's like five years per job. And the last two years, I've had about 15 jobs because I've gotten to the point in my life where if I need a day off, I'm taking it off because I need to play music like or, or have a comedy show or something. Like I do not – I prioritize my art over my employment, you know? And I realize if no one else believes in me, how am I going to believe in me? And I've turned down shows opening up for friends' bands in like you know New York City or whatever like that because I had a warehouse job or a video store job and I had some sort of unhealthy loyalty to these jobs. Mm-hmm. And now where I'm at is that I prioritize me. If they do not accept that, then they'll just have to find a replacement for me. But I've had a guy like we're saying he's like breaking it down. He's like Nate, we need a dishwasher here every Saturday, and I'm like there are more dishwashers in the world. I understand if you want to find another dishwasher that's not Nate Marks. By all means, find that dishwasher. He'll come yeah. and go, and I'm a good worker. I'm going to speak, speak plainly to you. I'll give you advance time when I need it, but I'm taking these nights off, and I need these nights off. And the guy could not wrap his head around it. It's like, your dream is running a restaurant. You're doing a good job at it. You want to have a reliable staff. I get that. My dream yeah. is not being your dishwasher. Right. My dream, you're lucky that I'm here. I'm doing your dishes, and you're paying me crappily for it. I do not resent it. You're going to get the best 100% work out of me when I'm here. But if I need time off, understand that that's my purpose in life. You run a restaurant. I run an 8 Marks um, art yeah. campaign, you know. Hmm. So that's where I'm at. And uh, I have a job right now working at a flea market video store at Video Bonanza, Q-Mart. And they're wonderful people to work for, and I'm very proud to work there. And they're accommodating when I need time off. And uh, I, I appreciate that. Where where is this flea market? Q Mart is in Quaker Town, Bucks County, okay. down three hundred nine. I highly recommend it. Friday, Saturday, Sundays. The video store has been there for thirty years, and uh, Q Mart is really neat. Like it's flea markets are neat. They're they're amazing to me. It's it's also kind of like uh, like a carny parade. Like you always find like <laughs> mullet hunting, or there's like always like a dwarf like daily. You see like a dwarf walking around. Like like I don't know where these people are coming out of the woodwork, but it's unusual. Like you see who's like shopping at the the big mall in town. Mm-hmm. It's like the other unsung heroes. I don't know where they're coming from, but there's so many unique characters out there, and I love it. I love flea markets. I love walking around. I love looking at old people's junk. I love trying new foods from around the world, and uh, there's just a lot of interesting uh, lifestyles to be discovered there, and uh, there's an open mic at the place called The Rock Den, run by a guy named Dan Taylor, and it's a fantastic open mic in a flea market at a little instrument shop. And that's every Friday. And because I get out of work around 7.30 or 8, I'm there every week. And uh, I'm making nice with the flea market intercom announcer lady. She's a very lovely lady. And so, like, I just say, hey, I'm going to bring you a cupcake and a coffee. Can you just say, Nate Marks and the Squirrel Trappers in 10 minutes, you know, to try to jazz up. You know, I feel great. Like a a wrestler entering the ring. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. trying to do my own promotion through a flea market intercom. It's never before I've been done. I'm I'm treating it like I'm, like, playing out. A Rockefeller Center, uh, but it's at a flea market. I just want to promote it. I'm going to actually rent out uh, a big room at the Q Mart where I'm going to have uh, a few bands and some of my favorite comedian friends, and I'm going to have music and comedy, 
And because it's such a spacious thing, I also want to showcase art, such by yourself, Albert Shovers, my friend Joey Tepidino, and try to get other artists, similar to the Rubik's Cube house party show, but okay. I want it to be like a one-stop shop for the senses, like art, music, comedy, you know, entertainment, and maybe I'll have like a sandwich seminar, like put together a sandwich for everybody. Like I just like yeah. one-stop shop for everything I care about, because I'm going to rent out this spot, and I want everybody to know my values and the values of my friends and fellow artistic allies, and everybody can come out and find something new and different because you cannot sit around waiting for invitations to like, hey, I want to hear weird music. I want to see art. I want to hear yeah. comedy, you know? Uh, you're going to be sitting around a long time waiting for that. So I highly recommend anybody out there listening to this or anybody that cares, if you're an artist or musician and you're feeling like you're not getting the right full amount of attention, stop waiting. And stop looking. You know what I mean? St stop waiting and start looking and rent out your own thing. Promote your own thing. Get out right. there and make it happen because then you'll find that you will be discovered because you put yourself out there, not waiting to be discovered. Mm -hmm. um, so it's maybe not a, maybe it's like a pipe dream, but me renting out a corner of a flea market. <laughs> it's no, a way of trying to get myself out there. Enough. And flea market people are my kind of people, you yeah. know? Oh, yeah. They're my target demographic. <laughs> I really just want to, I just want flea market people to follow me around. I want to be actually going on a flea market tour. If this thing works out, I want to run out flea markets across the nation and put together out the flea market tour. That'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And just, just call it that. <laughs> the flea market yeah. tour, yeah. Yeah, flee your minds or keep on rocking in the flea world, yeah. you know. I, I have different ideas for uh, how to pitch it as a catchphrase, but yeah, I think it'd be great. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. That'd be awesome. And there's, again, there's tons of good bands. Sure. Uh, next Friday, if you guys are interested, come on down. It's okay. at the Q Mart, and it's a really nice open mic. You meet some really great people, and if you're looking for a great bass player, there's a guy named James Kleinman, who's an exceptional bass player, and, and uh, I've never seen a better bass player. And my goodness, I found one at a flea market. How about yeah. that? Yeah. What time is it? Uh, six to nine. Six to nine. Okay. And if you uh, like movies, which I know you do, Putney yeah. Swopes, uh, come by the Video Bonanza. They really specialize in rare and obscure oddball movies they have basically every movie you're looking for and i uh, i love the job i love the place i'll work anywhere but it's the only job i had where i'm an expert you know mm -hmm. someone will come in there and say hey i'm looking for warner hartzog movies like i, I can talk about warner hartzog all day you want to talk about right. you know what i mean or people come in there asking about uh you know brian using the horror movies or screaming at george special effects or what have you it's like i love talking about movies even if i don't care about sandra bullock you ask me, I can name 20 Sandra Bullock movies. I don't right. know why. I just love movies. Um, yeah. I'm, a video, I'm a seasoned video store clerk. I can go on all day about Sandra Bullock. <laughs> you know? It's just, I have a job where I'm an expert. You know, I, can't, I couldn't have that at a warehouse or at a restaurant. I yeah. can talk about meatballs and hot dogs all day. But, like, man, I love talking about movies. I love being around movies. And uh, it's a dream job for me. So I'm actually at a job where I'm an expert at something. And I've never, ever had that experience before. So that's also a big, a big perk at working at a flea market video store. Yeah, that, that the store sounds it's, awesome. It's amazing. Video Bonanza. You'll love it. What are some, if you were to have some oddball <coughs> movies that you would throw out into the world? Mm, that, that people well, maybe maybe not have ever maybe seen? Not seen or know of. Um, like we were talking earlier about Putney Swope. Mm -hmm. I stumbled across that movie because of one of the actresses in it. She's one of the women... It wasn't a big role, but she was one of the women who was jumping up and down the airplane mm -hmm. sequence. Yeah. She's New one of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But she was, I had a crush on her when she was on Sanford Son. I was a little kid. Oh, she, I didn't know she was on that. Okay. She played Lamont's, for season five, Lamont had a fiance. It didn't work out. <laughs> okay. 
And she played Lamont's fiance. Wow. And I was all about her. Fast forward to like later in the internet, um, she was in Ganja and Hess, mm. uh, The Beast Must Die. She was in the second Blob movie. She was in um, a fantastic movie called Lord of Shango mm. that I definitely recommend. Um, like a 70s voodoo movie. But mm. it was like very well done for the for like that kind of a movie. Like it didn't feel too hokey at all. Mm. It was really well done. But that's how I discovered Putney Swope. Okay. And I watched it and I was like, this movie is like fucking amazing. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, and going back to Sanford and Sons, people ask me, because I do stand-up comedy. Uh, I don't think you've ever seen it, but people ask me, like, what's uh, my favorite comedian? And I'm always at a loss of words, and I really don't know how to, like, just, like, to narrow it down. But I think my favorite stand-up routine of all time is uh, Red Fox... I don't know what nightclub it is, but he polished it up for an HBO special. It was in like the late 70s, early 80s. But okay. Red Fox's comedy, I think, is my favorite comedy of all time. It's, per, it's like the one-liners, traditional, but um ching yeah. things. But it's also yeah. dirty. But then it's like mm-hmm. he does it in a way that sounds wholesome. The way he, you yeah. know. Oh, yeah. She's like, I want you to fuck me real good. Make it hurt. So <laughs> Fucking real good, and I picked up a rock and hit her with it. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's just a classic. It's yeah. kind of dirty, but like, I feel like touched and it's warming you know yeah. uh, but I, I love uh, Red Fox and, I, and uh, I'll check out some of those references I'm not familiar with that actress but um, but have you ever heard the Red Fox joke so I'm gonna butcher it I'm sorry Red Fox but the two women walking down the street and one woman sees her husband with coming out of a florist with a bunch of flowers and she says to the other woman she goes oh Jesus here's my husband coming out of the florist with flowers now I'm going to have to keep my legs up in the air for him for two weeks. <laughs> and the other woman says, why don't you just buy a vase? <laughs> That's a, yeah, and great. Yeah. That joke like did it for me in Red Fox. Yeah, sure. I've been like trying to collect the records and find them yeah. ever since. Yeah, they're, they're great, man. They're, they really are great. Uh, you don't hear that on the... The, sh- the show is beautiful, but like, you know, yeah. it's like rated G or PG. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, yeah. definitely toned it down for that. Yeah. Uh, as far as uh, movies that I'm into... Uh, uh, maybe the average uh, movie lover maybe not heard of. I'm really into like uh, stuff that's been, for whatever reason, out of print or banned. Like it fascinates me why things are forever, for, for, forever buried mm-hmm. in some celluloid vault somewhere. Um, one movie that I'm obsessed with is Ken Russell's The Devils, a 1971 movie. I don't know okay. if you've seen Ken yes. Russell movies. Yes. Have you ever seen I've that movie? I've seen that movie, yeah. Okay, like one way to describe it, like 1971 was a big year for a lot of movies that were like, I guess... Um, kind of hyper-violent or upsetting, like Straw Dogs by Sam Peckinpah, Clockwork Orange by Stanley Kubrick. Okay. Like, those are movies that are hyper-violent, like, I guess, around the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, the Hayes Code, which was, like, confining artistic visions and movies, was, like, yeah. for th- three decades or so, people couldn't really talk about a lot of things, and people yeah. were basically just walking fine lines of censorship just to try to put out movies. And then mm-hmm. in the late 60s, that ended, and you have stuff like Midnight Cowboy or... Uh, Easy Rider, stuff like that. Like, people mm-hmm. started being able to talk about the real life, you know? Right. Anyways, Ken Russell's The Devils is a real flamboyant depiction of a true story where, uh, you already know that, but Father Grandier, probably saying the French name wrong, was this, like, gigolo, woman-loving pre- priest in um, plague-riddled France where he had a, uh, a Walden town that protected Protestants when the Catholic Church was trying to hunt Protestants and kill them or kick them out. Mm-hmm. And 
He refused to do so, and so the Catholic Church found a way to conspire to make wrongful accusations on him and say that he was making a pact with the devil and seducing nuns. And there was hunchbacked, lovesick nun was obsessed with him, made all these accusations against him, and the Catholic Church ran with it. And the movie is so funny and plays out like a flamboyant, wild, visual musical, almost Mm -hmm. in a sense, and by the end of it, it's a horrific witch-burning scene, and it's like, it becomes like a horror movie at the end. But you have all the elements of humor, like British dry humor and witty dialogue, and lots of, you know, lots of uh, sex, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and just like a, a really interesting uh, historical backdrop. But by the end, you're watching like a horror movie by the end. And, right. just, and that movie just moved me on so many levels, and I guess it's so upsetting to the Catholic Church because unlike The Exorcist, where like you have like a girl masturbating with a crucifix, right. people by the end of that like they went to the Catholic Church. You know, it actually was good for pew filling. People watch Exorcist, yeah. and it's good for business. The Catholic right. Church is like this yeah. movie is good for business. Right. Uh, this movie about the Catholic Church conspiring to have a, a witch hunt for this good man uh, who atoned for himself at the end. Right. Like, he wanted to be martyred. He was like a a faithless man, a womanizer. And he mm-hmm. wanted to be martyred, and by the end, he was martyred, trying to protect people, and people didn't right. realize that. It was based on a book by Aldous Huxley. Okay. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm fascinated with that movie, The Devils. I think that's a great movie. And um, that is probably like my second or third favorite movie of all time. And the, another one I really like is Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia by okay. Sam Peckinpah. Um, that's another movie I'm just uh, obsessed with. But Yeah, I, just, I, like, I like movies, but my favorite genre of movies like 70s and 80s. Yeah. And I'm also fascinated by stuff that's just out of print, hard to find, because mm-hmm. I feel like there's a reason you're not supposed to see it. Um, either somebody like borrowed heavily from it, like a lot of good movies like Black Sunday and Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Like there's like scenes and shots and frameworks that like Tarantino completely ripped off and doesn't give credit. Like as yeah. an example, like some yeah. people like they'd rather see the uh, updated, repackaged version of the original of, of something that was originally made. Yeah. Well, a- after I had seen the first Kill Bill. I went and found the movie Lady Snowblood. Mm, is that an Asian film? Yes. Okay, I, I forget what it is, but I, I'm not sure if I've seen it. So pretty much the best way to explain it is, um, what was the uh, Lucy Liu's character's name in uh, Kill sure. Bill? But you know who I'm talking, you know yeah, what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Imagine if she had her own movie. Mm. And it, like, like you say, shot for shot, the whole thing, um, the outfit exact right. match. Talk about like, just repackaging. Like this movie, knowing its original form, it blew me away. I was like, Jesus! Like, this is where he got it from. And right. This is this original thing is amazing. Mm. And that's what I had never thought about going back and digging into movies before then. Mm. Putney Smoke was a big one, but the movie Ganja and Hess I mentioned before. Mm was really inspiring to me. And if you haven't seen it... I have to see it. I haven't... I know they played at the Mahoning Drive-In last, okay. last year. Okay. And I think it was part of like a voodoo night or something. So like a voodoo yeah. type of movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wish I had seen it. I uh, It was like a third on a double feat. Uh, it was like a triple feature and I stayed for the first two. I didn't like... I thought okay. the midnight was too late for me. Gotcha. Yeah, I got really into like black exploitation for a while. Because you start watching them, and to me, you realize like these are good movies mm-hmm. with storylines that are thought out. And they're the indie movies; they're independently made. Yeah, I don't know if you saw that. Uh, My name is Dolmite. The movie uh, Eddie Murphy played Dolmite. I haven't seen that one. It was so well made, and, and I have a okay. deeper appreciation of like the Rudy Ray Moore uh-huh. uh, and, and what he went to, and how nobody believed in him. And it was this interesting; like he's kind of like a little chubby guy. So, 
And like yeah. saying, I'm going to do like a karate move. And people are like, you can't do karate. It's like, yeah, he believes in himself. It's like this half-assed little fat leg kick is like, <laughs> it's hilarious to watch. Or a sex scene with this chubby guy. It's, it's hilarious because he believes in himself. So it's so much better than watching like an actual able-bodied karate kick or like a guy in shape making love in a movie. Like right. we, we're rooting for this common man because yeah. we relate to the common man. I want to see this shit, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I liked uh, Rudy Ray Moore, the, the Dolomite movies, the human tornado mm-hmm. and, and, uh, uh, as far as, as far as modern movies go, I thought that was a great biography to watch. Uh, Eddie Murphy did a great job showing off uh, who Rudy Ray Moore was. And yeah. cause I did not know the backstory, but like indie filmmaking, it's like you made it because people, because you you had no other outlet. You believed in it and you pushed it. You put it together yeah. with your own friends and family and money and you had it done and we remember it now because of your uncompromised vision. Like, you know, yeah. I think more people will be watching um I, I don't know, whatever the more popular movie from nineteen seventy five would be, but like more people are watching Dolmite now than whatever like I don't know. Oh yeah. I know exactly popular what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, so that's why I work at a video store and I'm always trying to surround myself by movies because it makes me feel good. But yeah. That's it. But thanks for asking. I uh, love talking about movies. <laughs> One of the movies, if you can find it, I definitely recommend it. It's called This Girl's a Badass. Mm-hmm. I believe it's a Japanese movie. Teenage girl who's a kung fu expert and bike messenger. Mm. And she works her bicycle into the kung fu scene. Beautiful. Like, it's part of it. It was really good. I recommend that one, too. Well, I had, I had two DUIs, so I had to ride a bicycle for 10 years. So, like, I want to have, like, more bicycle heroes in my life. Okay, no. This is the movie, <laughs> to connect then. To, you know? This is the movie, then. <laughs> oh, okay. There's not enough bicycle heroes out there. Everyone's in a hot rod. Do you remember the first time your thoughts were turned to evil things? He plies me with caresses. Lust obscene. He enters my bed at night. And takes from me that which is consecrated to my divine right, God, Jesus Christ. And what form does this incubus take? Fuck! <laughs> Who is responsible for this evil possession? But of course I can prove nothing. This Mother Superior may be little more than a hysterical nun. But if it is a genuine case of possession by devils, and if Grandier himself was proved to be involved, then yes, I think it bears investigation, gentlemen. You've been a magician. I'd come, I'd squid devils. Eternal damnation. Conjecture is useless. We need a professional witch hunter. We must send for Father Barre. sake of the listener you have any shows coming up places people can catch you if you look me up i have i'm going to be running out this flea market space in the corner of the q mart in a couple of months and other than that i don't know where to put my music i'm trying to find a place to uh to host my own show um and it's hard given the black backdrop of of covid it's hard to find Mm -hmm. these places so other than you, you know the house shows I don't know where I can actually run out a place and put together something like that because people want you to bring in a crowd. And I like to think that I can probably muster 20 or so people at most. Mm. I'm not Jay-Z or Pavarotti selling out stadiums here, but I'd like to think 20 people is a lot for me. Right. You know, I'm proud of that, you know, but I'd like to make that a lot, a lot bigger of a dent. Um, but I don't know where to put, I don't know where to do any shows. So I'm just going to hit up an open mic everywhere I go. But Sciota 
Yeah. Uh, Old Mill Pub on Tuesdays, Emmaus Coffee House, King Coffee on Wednesdays. Thursday, once a month at the Steel Pub Ice Skating Rink in Bethlehem, I do stand-up comedy. And every Friday night, I do an open mic at the Q Mart. So four out of the five nights of the week, I have something going on. Um, and it's all pretty much open mic right now. Um, and I try to put it up on YouTube. I sometimes make videos um, so you can see that stuff. I'm currently recording uh, a song at Rubik's Pube Studios. Uh, right now, it's a song. It's kind of like a dance song. It sounds like what I call third world disco music. Okay. Uh, I like like uh, 70s, 80s, like African rock, you know? It's, okay. it's, it's called uh, Hot Squirrel. It's very percussive, a lot of fretless, groovy bass in it. And it's uh, a dance song. Minimal lyric, almost no lyrical depth or profound wisdom in it. It's just a feel-good song about squirrels. And again, mm-hmm. I just like basically try to find something to sing about so that you're listening to the hook and the and the groove and the fretless bass and the fun musical tone of it all. So that's kind of going to be coming out soon when I finish Hot Squirrel. Um, but in recent times, uh, my last masterpiece of a song is called COVID Girl. I finished okay. that in November. If you want to hear it, it's about six and a half minutes. Um, bass, drums, guitar, and a lot of fancy banjo jazz. I'm like like Django Reinhardt, Gypsy Jazz on the banjo. And it's nice. to me, I don't think there's any real good COVID songs out there, and I'm very proud of it. And some of my finest banjo jazz playing. So if you're interested, you can hear a, a COVID song with some fantastic music with Vanessa Marciano and Rob Shepard on it. And uh, that's probably one of my most recent music uh, releases that, that I'm the most proud of. But of all my albums, there's Hex and Dons, Objects in Hi-Fi, Hydra Squirrels, Secrets of the Universe, Heva Hava, and 9-11 Dolphin Porn. Those are my six albums that I have. And 9-11 Dolphin Porn is my most recent. And there is a June 12th uh, Campover Fest where I have a midnight slot at some, I don't know what the heck it is, but it's like a overnight camping thing. I imagine they're jam bands or whatever. I don't know. There's lots of musicians there, but I got the midnight slot, so I don't know what to expect. If people are going to be awake, asleep, if they're going to be tripping yeah. their balls off. Like, I have no idea what to expect at midnight, but I'm going to be wearing spandex and American flag as a cape, uh, playing rubber chickens, throwing glitter at the audience, and I'm going to be playing about 15 all-original songs with an amazing band. Nice. Um, nice. So that's where I'm at in that's life. Awesome. Yeah. Before we go, I want to ask you about this guy. Oh, this is a, this is a rental squirrel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm borrowing it from Zeke Katz. I don't know if you know Zeke Katz. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course you do. He was Mike yeah. Strong's neighbor. I love Zeke. He's one of the nicest guys I've ever met and a fantastic musician. And um, there was a short-lived uh, part of my life where I was told that Netflix was interested in a movie uh, through this uh, production company in Philly. And uh, the idea was pitched to me to do a variety hour or a comedy special. And I had this idea of called Nate Marks and the Squirrel Trapper Variety Hour. And rather than be like a one-man show where you go and you present yourself as, uh, here I am, I'm going to tell some jokes, I'm going to be likable and play music. I had this idea of like, let's say you like were just tuning into a show and you're watching this, but instead of a guy trying to win over the audience, he's completely being bashed by the audience. Everyone hates him and everything's falling apart on stage. And it's like shout and Freud of watching misery, of getting pleasure from someone else's misery, just watching everything. You know, the laugh track is off, the, peop, the janitor keeps mopping in front of the cameraman. Um, the audience isn't clapping at anything, and like one of the jokes is like, well, what happened to the audience? And I'm like, the, the I say the studio uh, production person is like, oh, the audience didn't show up because there wasn't a strong response to the ad in the paper, so we 
borrowed some people from the nearby methadone clinic and promised them free soup. And so you have people like falling asleep and shooting up and, yeah. uh, you know, and, and it's like my pregnant wife shows up and she's, uh, you know, demanding, uh, I talk to her lawyer. She brings like interrupts my jokes and nobody likes my jokes. My songs are interrupted. This show just gets worse and worse. And by the end, the satanic, we find out the janitor is a Satanist and his broom closet's a shrine to Satan. And he had made a pact with the devil to offer my show as a sacrifice for his power on earth. Uh-huh. And uh, there's going to be a giant uh, squirrel attack at the end. And my pregnant wife, her legs pop open and a bunch of bloody squirrels shoot out of her crotch and attack everyone. And everyone's going to be... And so it's like every element... But this is, a, this is a script I wrote and I was right. really proud of this thing. And uh, I was pitching it to a lot of people and I told uh-huh. Z Cats that I need squirrels. I want squirrels. I want like squirrel puppets, taxidermy squirrels, anything I have. And uh, I guess Zeke's ex-wife had the squirrel. It's like a family heirloom. And uh-huh. he let me borrow it so that it could be a... You could find a place in this movie. And the movie folded because of creative differences where I'm just sitting on this script of an amazing story. And uh, this is basically the lights up my room. I have two cats and a taxidermy squirrel, and this is my entertainment center. When I go home, I just, you know, light some incense. I pet this thing. It's very lonely. I spoon it. You know, <laughs> I feed it acorns, but it's, you can't really see it, but its face has fallen off. And yeah. I love Zeke, but I really don't want to give it back. But I'm going to have to give it back because unless I have it anywhere, I don't know where else I've got to go with this thing. But it's bragging rights, you know. I also feel like there was too many people at a bar or like a restaurant, and you like want some more elbow room. You just like whip this thing out, put it on the oh, table, yeah. and people okay, this guy, <laughs> yep. leave him alone. Yep. <laughs> He's got a, a a faceless squirrel, a dead animal on the counter. We're gonna leave, give him some space. So, do you have any intention of trying to resurrect that script eventually? Um, uh, actually, as a matter of fact, so the whole thing is going to be done like you're watching a talk show or a, mm-hmm. a stand-up performance. You know what I mean? Right. So what I would have to do is have about there's about 15 people with speaking parts. The audience is really the joke. Like me, I'm just basically the guy that's falling apart at the expense of everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what to do with it or how to go about it, where to pitch it to, but I do know this. I don't want it to have, I don't want to compromise anything. And if I raise the money, I want to have the final say in it. And that was one of the problems with making this thing that I was supposed to be taking a backseat approach to having somebody else run with my things. And comedy, like anything, is timing. Like, if you're not funny and I, I, I don't want to fund a movie of my intellectual property and then have it poorly edited where the jokes mm-hmm. fall flat and you don't get it. Yeah. And um, I also found that the person I was working with was also a bit condescending, assuming that I should be starstruck because you have connections to Hollywood or Netflix. Mm-hmm. I don't really care for most Hollywood stuff or Netflix stuff. And I'm not a starstruck boy. Like What I, what I, what I want is results. Like. Yeah. I want to make something great. I don't care what your resume says. I want to work something you know good here and now. And I didn't feel like I was seeing that professionalism that was bragged about. Um, but I was grateful of the opportunity to be in a studio, to have a script printed out, and to have a read of it. But it was in the back of my mind I felt like this was not going to be something that I was going to be. What It was not going to be re- realized as intended. And I did not want to release a uh, half-assed shell of a version of the idea that I had of the Nate Marks and the Squirrel Trapper Variety Hour. But, to my knowledge, there's about 20 people in the whole universe that know what the script is, and that's people that had read the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And it was such a rewarding feeling to have people in a room reading my script going around, and to have Mm -hmm. them actually laughing. And I'll be like, you know, stay in character or whatever, but like I'm realizing that's what it's supposed to be like. These are funny jokes. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of stuff I try to sneak in there, like personal messages, things that I think, uh, I I do want to have a message. I don't want to be preachy, but 
I do want to talk about real things. I'm not shy about real things or the problems of the world. I want to laugh at them and talk about them. So there was a lot of topical subject matter that I had in there disguised as the entertainment that it is, but there was a lot of stuff I was talking about. Mm. Um, yeah. So you don't don't give away anything you don't want to give away, but um, <clears throat> like what what would be an example of like one of your topical things that you hit on in this movie, and how are you how are you approaching? Ah, well, uh, all right, uh, a good one. And, and I felt, like, maybe uneasy about this script because I gave it to a bunch of people. Like, I want to know, does this sound like a good joke? Is this a funny thing? Because I'm trying to talk mm -hmm. about something. One of the things is that... I'll give you two examples. Um, but one of the things was that I'm um, doing my stand-up routine and then the headset person with the clipboard who's basically trying to, like, run the show and help me out with this production mm -hmm. comes up and says... Nate, we just got a message from headquarters, from the network, and, uh, well, they're saying there's not enough diversity in your audience. Your variety show lacks variety, in other mm -hmm. words. I said, well, what do you mean? That's not up to me. Like, you know, you guys get the people from the methadone clinic, and nobody's going out. I don't know. What do you want me to do right. about the lack of diversity? And I look out, and it's a majority of, like, almost an all-white audience with a couple of black people speckled in and out through right. the middle and the end of the audience crowd. Uh -huh. And so the joke pretty much is it's a great joke. Uh the idea is, she says, well, we have to do some seating arrangements so that we can have a better, diverse, showcased audience to improve our ratings. I'm like, well, what do you want me to do? It's like, well, we have to start rearranging people. So I said, all right, guys, this isn't up to me. Uh, and it's like acting like it's just casual. Like, uh, you, you, and you. I uh, have to get up and like acting like it's random. Uh, you, you, and you. I point to some black people like, right. uh, i got to switch seats with you and this. Right. And then somebody's like, hey, what, what's this about, man? I, and then she's like explaining, like, it's about ratings. We're trying to have a better diversity for a mass market appeal. And I hope you understand it's not us. It's the network. It's nothing personal. We just have to rearrange some people for some mass appeal. Right. And a black guy's like, reverse racism is still racism. And like, uh, okay, you know, like, like I said, it's not up to me. I said, some of my best friends are black. And everyone's like, right. yeah, right, okay. And uh -huh. then when it gets to this woman, her name is Mela Shea. She's a comedian. She has cerebral palsy and she's Jewish. And when it gets to her, they say, I'm sorry, miss, we have to get you up. She goes like, piss off. I, I, I represent diversity. I am diversity. I have cerebral palsy and I'm Jewish. Uh -huh. And then I say to the clipboard lady, is cerebral palsy or Jewish good for uh, ratings? I'm like, no, horrible for ratings. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, we have to ask you to leave. And like, there's like a black woman like sitting behind her, like rocking. She can't wait to get these seats. Like, oh, these are nice seats, you know? Right. And the cerebral palsy woman she's like well this is horrible i can't believe you're treating your audience so shittily right. and like and the, the extension of the joke's like it's not like that some of my best friends have cerebral palsy and are jewish right. you know <laughs> and then as the black woman takes her seat the cerebral palsy woman gets up falls down gets up falls down <laughs> it's just it's just like and and then there's like this racial tension amongst the audience and right. me and like i'm still trying to do my show but it's sort of like we're in a modern day where people should just gauge entertainment by the quality of the entertainment, not a checklist of identity politics, which right. I do understand. Like, you do have to have a fair playing field and show all, all the world, but you can't just have, like, you, you can't just have a checklist for your story. You have to have yeah. the story. You know what I mean? So I'm just trying to show that reverse racism is still racism and that we should laugh about it and talk about it because these networks are pandering to people. And yeah. Netflix is probably owned by a lot of white people, so, like, they're trying to say, like, Hey, this show's great for the community. This show's great for the community. It's like, you know, these are written by people designed to try to get ratings and to try to push more. It perpetuates more than it helps. I, you know, people should talk about racism. People should talk about social injustices. They really should. But they, sh but you trying to make a buck on it, 
that you're an exploiter. You're a carpetbagger. Oh, you're making. You're exploiting the actual situation of people's struggles and then trying to pat yourself on the back by exploiting it, making money off it, by further perpetuating it. And so mm-hmm. that was one of the jokes. And the other joke was um, sort of like the Me Too movement, where the, when the, my pregnant wife stands up and says she's pregnant with my child and how she plans, if my show's a success, to take every bit of money she's entitled to because of my unborn child. Uh-huh. And I'm like, I'm like, Veronica also, all the nemesis in my stories and songs is named Veronica. Like, <laughs> I have this thing again about Veronica's. I'm like, Veronica, we don't even know if the child is mine. And she goes, a woman always knows, you know, like right. admitting that it might not, might not be right. mine. And when it, when the word gets out that she might be entitled to like my money if I get this thing uh, to right. be uh, profitable, all the women start standing up. What about me? I'm pregnant with your child. And I'm like, right. before you guys start gold digging upon me with these false claims, we don't even know if the show is a hit, you right. know? Yeah. And so it, it, it's just, it was like funny to me because it's easy to, you know, it's their valid movements. They're valid movements, but we're also talking about like hating men is also a thing. Like, not every guy's a piece of shit. A lot right. of them are, but not every guy's a piece of shit. Right. And there's lots of gold diggers out there. For every guy that is a a, a misogynist, uh, you know, hateful, terrible person, there's also like the gold digger we don't really hear about yeah. that will make it whatever she has to just to pick the guy's pockets clean. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We don't talk about that. People can make a career out of making babies you know what i mean we should talk about that we should laugh about that and that was the purpose of this thing just to talk about things that are uncomfortable and have it because it's a show that's supposed to make me look bad and have all this awkward tension laughed at at the expense of me and i want everybody to be able to laugh at these horrible things that do exist in the world and that was two jokes the me too movement and like reverse racism identity politic pandering i wanted that to be showcased Mm -hmm. in this and also there's music Comedy, and by the end, a giant bloody squirrel attack upon everybody. So, Sorry. I don't think I gave too much away, but um, if you read it, like no, I'm, but that's a good. I want to see the. I, I'm, I'm supporting it happening yeah. now. I want to. I, I, I'll, I'll sometimes I'll do a script read for you. You can see all, okay. all the jokes play out, but it's a wonderful script. I'm very proud of it, and I was glad that I had the opportunity to be pushed into making it. I am sitting on a couple scripts. Uh, if anybody's listening or they like this kind of thing, uh, I do have two short films on YouTube. One is called. The Human Unicorn, mm-hmm. it's about the last remaining video store clerk in the world. I filmed it on location at a 40-hour video store where I worked for five years, and I could go on about all the stuff that I, I've encountered there. It's really fascinating, but at the end, it was basically I was babysitting a ghost town, and uh, mm-hmm. majority of the people are just people that didn't discover the internet and are really into porn. Like Porn kept them going for so long. Half the right. store was adult movies. Um, the first so the first movie is The Human Unicorn. That's about... Uh, it's a video store mockumentary, 15 minutes, and the other one is called A Fall from the Bun, the MC Dogwater Story. Mm-hmm. And that is basically me as a washed-up folk singer that was part of a spearhead of the hot dog folk music scene, where if you know Yako's hot dog theme song, I don't know if you know Yako's has a hot dog theme song. No. Uh, so I'm in hot dog country, Pennsylvania, uh-huh. and in hot dog country, Pennsylvania, you have Yako's, Willie Joe's, Potts, Annie's, Trobs, those are like hot dog franchises and Yako's has a theme song. So I had this idea in my head, like let's say that Yako's didn't just have the only theme song. Uh-huh. Every one of these hot dog places had its own theme song and behind that theme song was some hot dog folk singer. And right. so this is basically the aftermath of all these washed up hot dog folk singers hating each other and there's like this folk <laughs> war rivalry out in the streets, people singing about hot dogs. So it's filmed at different hot dog restaurants mm-hmm. and I'm MC Dogwater and my rival is Bill Midday. You met him at the open mic. He's a funny old guy. Yes, I, 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 um, you had sent me this movie. I, I did watch it. 
Oh, okay. I, I, it was awesome. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So Bill Madey, he's in both my movies. He's uh, an independent pornographer. And okay. the, the 40 hour, he's R.J. Kunkel Stump. He makes his own homemade pornos. <laughs> and he's trying, he brings them in a briefcase, tries to sell them to video stores. And the second one, he's Steam Buns Bidet. And he's the guy that basically claims he started the hot dog folk music scene. But in reality, he lit the torch while MC Dogwater carried the torch to the mountaintop. You know, mm. in the in the in the world of hot dog folk music, and that 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 again is a fifteen minute movie, and uh, I did pay to submit it to a couple film festivals, but it never went anywhere. Gotcha. But yeah, that was uh, two mockumentaries that I'm proud of, and again, it's like a vehicle for my music, jokes, and it's like funny. I think they're they're good stories. They're fun. It was it was real great having you on. I'm glad we got the chance to. You could probably edit this down to like four minutes. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, we're doing the whole thing. We're the all thing. in. Okay. We're all in. This oh, is good. this podcast is not just a tip, Nate. Just a tip. Okay. I want to get balls yeah, deep not, with it. Yeah, we're we're this is the whole thing. Wonderful. But yeah, thanks so much for doing this. I definitely want to have uh, you shake back your on hand over it so yes. you hear the handshake. Thank you, yeah. Isaac. Yeah. Thank, thank you, man. Albert and Isaac. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, man, likewise. I'm my own favorite. I'm my own biggest fan, so <laughs> I like promoting uh, whatever the hell I'm doing. Yeah, and you're on um, Facebook. I'm on Parks. Facebook and YouTube, yeah. But what really matters to me is like not you know to be friends with me in real life, and yeah. um, if you can, watch me in real life. But if not, yeah. there's lots of stuff on YouTube. But I do like you know, liking my stuff. But like me in real life, meet me in real life. I'm a nice guy. I'll even talk to you, and I want to perform anywhere. Anybody that's looking for music or comedy, uh, and I'm trying to forge a network with uh, lots of like-minded artistic allies in comedy, music, and art. And I'm lucky that I have the friends that I do because that's where I'm at right now. Well, there you go, folks. What a great podcast. I want to really sincerely thank Nate Marks for coming on the show, giving some of his time, and covering all the topics that we covered. It was really great to have him on. I'm ex- I was been excited since I recorded this for you all to hear it. I also want to really thank my bro Isaac for week after week being my modern-day Ed McMahon it's great to have him on the show. You can find his work on Instagram at when underscore in Zen. And you can find my work and what I'm going to be up to coming soon. I got some new art shows happening. Got a bunch of new podcasts coming down the pike at you. You can find all that information and more on my Instagram at Albert Shivers. Once again, a thank you to Nate Marks. Find him on Instagram at Nate Marks too. Find him on Facebook, and more importantly, find him in person. Go visit him, say hello. Thank you all for listening immensely. You guys are why I do this. You can find this episode and more on all major podcast platforms and YouTube with video. Another big, great guest next week. I'm excited for it. And yeah, I'm going to hand it over to Nate now to bring this podcast home. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of somebody else.